Hi, I'm Sam Medina. You can catch me on Mile 22, Venom, Elite Battle Angel, and you are listening to Inside Your Head with Nasty Neil. Thank you very much. And I never asked to grow up, so please don't make me do it. I wasn't meant to grow up. Don't think I'll make it through it. Things have been going south since I hit puberty. It looks like growing up is just too much for me. Welcome to Inside Your Head. This is Nasty Neil, and I'm joined by iconic actor of fame, Blood In, Blood Out, 24, Con Air, all kinds of stuff, including his new film, Phoenix, Oregon, which we'll be talking about momentarily. It's very cool to have you here, Jesse Borrego. Hey, hey, glad to be here, Neil. How you doing today? I'm good. I have my first cup of coffee here in the morning. <laughs> that first one is so important. Yeah. Yes, it is. I drink I drink yerba mate myself, so everybody uh, freaks out because they see me with a cup of uh, green grass, and uh, I tell mm. them that's my coffee. <laughs> I had my smoothie earlier, and now a cup of coffee. That's my morning routine. There it is. Mm. Yes. So Phoenix, Oregon. It's interesting because it comes out March twentieth, but because of everything that's going on right now, it's gonna. If you buy theatrical tickets, you get to watch it at home. Kind of cool, man. Kind of cool that we're able to uh, pivot so quickly uh, in the face of what's going on. You know, the producers, Annie Lundgren, uh, Gary Lundgren and Louis G really felt ethically that uh, we were in the middle of pushing this thing when this uh, pandemic really started to uh, exponentially grow. Uh, and, you know, we really wanted to err on the side of caution. So we started looking at this uh, and the reality of what was happening. And we realized that all we had to do was uh, work with the theaters to keep everyone in the mix and still uh, provide the film, provide entertainment, but at the same time also uh, urge people to uh, err on the side of caution, you know? So uh, we were able to do that. And thank God now we're able to provide entertainment during all of this because a lot of people are getting sequestered and quarantined and social distancing themselves and you know they are all looking for uh things to watch and things to do and so it's wonderful to be able to continue to do what we do but not really uh push against what's safe right now which is for everyone to uh, be careful and to be healthy and to be safe Mm -hmm. and it seems like uh most businesses are being uh good with things like that like you said that you know the um the cup itself is like, uh, yeah, we can put it on t- you know, TV so people can base. It's like kind of like video on demand, but it's different, you know, because it's a movie at the theater. And uh, like earlier today, I do AMC Stub Club and they sent me a thing that like, you know, because they close AMC theaters. And uh, so they just like will um, pause my my membership until things start up again. And, uh, you know, there's all mm-hmm. a lot of craziness going out there, but it's good that people are trying to work with each other. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's definitely uh, societal disruption. I mean, we were uh, we always talk about the possibility of something big enough happening that can affect all of our society and our our, our normal way of life. Um, you know, but the beautiful thing about it is, is it's really showing how connected we all are. Uh, which, interestingly enough, is a lot of the themes in the film. You know, it's mm-hmm. about connectedness it's about brotherhood and friendship uh about uh community 
coming together to back up somebody's dream, you know, uh, and Indians are not useless in life. Even though they're going through midlife crises, they've uh, got to figure out how to reinvent themselves and keep their lives going and keep their dreams alive, realizing or not realizing that while they're doing that, they're, they're, they're showing society, you know, and they're bringing joy to society. Carlos with his food and his pizzas, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and ultimately Bobby with his art, you know, his expression. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's what's beautiful because that's exactly what's going on right now. People are having to think of more than themselves. Think of community. Think of, of family. Think of, uh, think of society at large and what it means. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the, that's the good takeaway from all of this. You know, so it's kind of, it's just kind of uh, wonderfully ironic that those are the main themes in Phoenix, Oregon. You know, coming together, uh, believing in each other, compassion and integrity. You know, right now there's a, you know, the big corporations are having to think about is the bottom line more important or is the fact that you really care about people and their safety important? Um, and I, I think that's what the uh, movie industry is going through because there is a kind of a disconnect between the creators, the filmmakers, and the business of it, which is getting the entertainment out there. You know, many years... Um, 30 plus years in the industry, I've worked on indies, I've worked on studio films, and one of the things I realize is that indies have such a hard time, depending on the market, uh, you know, every decade it's different, the 80s, the 90s, the early mm -hmm. 2000s, and the climate for indies is always tough, depending on, you know, how the industry itself is monopolizing ideas, is... Um, you know, really, really able to put a lot of millions of dollars into publicity and advertising. So I can see that a film that may not have much, um, you know, not much to teach a genre film that's not that much to teach society is, you know, exemplified and spread all over the world. Whereas a couple of films that have really deep human compassionate stories, delightful pieces of work, never see the light of day. You know, then you got into the whole thing where physical media was starting to die out and there was a transition between DVDs and streaming. Well, that technology, you know, a few years ago hadn't caught up yet. So mm -hmm. we wouldn't have been able to do this a few years ago. Um, and the technology's caught up. So now we can pivot quickly and go, hey, you know what? Let's keep this story going. It's here. We're ready to release it. We're ready to do this. Thank you to these independents that have backed us up, you know, here in San Antonio, the big chain of Santicos. Um, but every place that we kind of were able to independently show the film responded. And that speaks to the artistry of Gary Lundgren, the writer, director, uh, and to our actors. You know, James LeBrow is incredible in this. Lisa Edelstein, you know, this beautiful strong, you know, but vulnerable, you know, uh, sexy Tanya that, that, that she creates out of her character. Diedrich Bader just comes in. All the guys that had to come in and play the character parts, Diedrich Bader, our, uh, our, our, our owner. Um, yeah. You know, Kevin Corrigan as Al, the crazy bowling technician. <laughs> yeah, he's great in that. Uh, you know, Ray, yeah, Ray Gallegos as uh, the investor who kind of burns us. Mm -hmm. All of these 
guys came in at a moment's notice to work on this little indie film in Oregon. They all had a few days to come in and create these incredible characters. Um, and, you know, I just saw that we had, you know, a, a, you know, indie films are about actors. They're actors' playgrounds. So I just saw that we had a gem, that these professional artists came in and gave their, gave their all to a little little narrative like this. And I think Gary, knowing what he had, you know, what he does best is directing, editing. And so he'd written a gem, and I think it was he was able to really put together a, an in, incredibly delightful film at a moment that people really need this right now. You know, they mm-hmm. need the uplift. They need a, a, a winning, you know, uh, an underdog story that uh, that delights. Uh, and so I'm, uh, I'm really proud of it, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really I, liked it. I, I, I thought it was a great movie. And uh, I, I personally, I just turned 44 and uh, I had a lot of health problems the last few years. And last year I got uh, a lot healthier. <laughs> I lost a lot of weight and stuff. And I made uh, a short film that's in the um, film festivals now. And I've done two feature films. And so I would like to really relate to uh, just, yeah, to someone uh, for a lot, actually a lot of things you just said about independent films, but also, you know, you get to a certain point in life and you think, you know, I'd like to do all these things and, you know, you have to actually uh, do them. And there's a lot in the movie I could relate to. And I think everyone. Exactly. And I think, you know, a lot of times, uh, the, the industry is definitely skewed towards, uh, ageism and, in terms of realizing, I think the business realizes, oh, you know, them kids will buy anything. So, you know, and so the current, the whole current uh, development of stories and narrative, uh, you know, is a uh, comic book narratives. You know, I gave up comic book narratives when I was a kid because they were adolescent storylines. You know, the idea of an Uber being coming along and fixing all your problems. And then, you know, the kind of a, you know, when I followed graphic novels, then our comic book heroes became anti-heroes and they had issues and those were kind of interesting, but it was still kind of based on that same comic book narrative. So now as, you know, as a, as a performer and an artist, as an actor and a filmmaker, I see that, uh, you know, we're leaving all these, uh, independent ideas. Uh, these uh, narratives about real human society on the wayside. And a lot of those is, uh, you know, people, as they get older, they're getting that in between stage. And we don't really want to talk about those things because uh, we're really going through them. But you know what? That's where the beautiful stories are. That's where the uplift is when, when you can see yourself. And I, and I remember when I was first an actor, we always talked about the everyman. And that's who you were trying to talk to, not to the king, not to the rich person, not to the high society, but you were trying to talk to every man. And as a Chicano actor, um, I've always felt an enormous responsibility to my Latino culture and to my Latino public to exemplify them in the best way possible, especially in American cinema. So I've always tried to do that in my characters, my role, I've tried to be as picky as possible. Uh, and so it's wonderful to be able to meet somebody like Gary Lundgren and to, you know, to absorb their writing and then to go work with this incredible film group that he's got in Oregon. The Oregon Film Office really supports the, their filmmakers. And you can tell because of that, they've they've grown into this very strong, 
you know, familial group. When uh, this film opened at the Ashland Independent Film Festival, um, which is an incredible audience for uh, films, I realized that a lot of the filmmakers that had been in our crew actually had films as directors and filmmakers and writers in the Independent Film Festival itself. So I realized that we were working with a bunch of uh, filmmakers, a bunch of artists themselves. And here they were as production crew for Gary and Annie because they they love them and they'd work with them so much. Um, and it was just a joy to be on that type of a set. So even though it was an independent film with a very limited budget um, and, uh, you know, we, we had to deal a lot with, uh, you know, but that's again where community comes through. The Oregon community came through, uh, you know, the bowling alley we were at. Um, in Klamath Falls really took care of us um, and uh, opened up their doors, you know, and he allowed us to be in his beautiful bowling alley, retro bowling alley, and, you know, mess it up to make it look like an abandoned bowling alley. And then, you know, take over his, uh, basically shut him down because we had to uh, have control of the space. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we, we, came like family and every day we'd see each other and it was like we'd known each other forever you know he commented on that he said i can't believe you guys are movie stars you guys are so friendly you talk to us and i said look you're giving to us for this incredible story of phoenix oregon so we're going to give back to you so don't don't you know no no you're you're your family right now you're you're part of the crew you're part of the production remember that from now on you're going to live forever in this film and uh it was just a hoot to hang out with uh barry the owner of a uh, big shout out to barry the owner of the uh, bowling alley that we shot at in klamath falls but it's this type of love it's this type of community you know that that in an independent project like this can really break it out of its shell and the potential for it to reach its core audience you know which is what's happening right now that's why it was so important for me when the film was about to be released, that I'd be involved in the distribution of it. And I told Gary and Annie, I said, look, I've brought it to South Texas. You've been here. They love it. If we don't have enough to open in as many theaters as you want, let me at least try to bring it to San Antonio. So we were in the middle of all that when the uh, COVID-19 uh, virus started to spread. And at that point, we already knew, well, you know what? There's already this happening. States of emergency are being declared. Things are being shut down. Let's think ahead. Let's, what, what would happen if, uh, and I think the main thing was the, uh, you know, the ethical values of Annie Lundgren, our producer. You know, her and Louis G got together and they didn't feel good about continuing to promote uh, public um, gatherings, especially as it was getting serious day by day by day by day. So I think at that point, we started to think of an alternate plan in case people didn't want to go uh, with the view at home option. And so we started to put it together, the idea, and then reach out to the theaters who right away saw what was happening. And I, and I think the Lamleys in LA had already closed or was getting ready to close. Uh, so they jumped on board and boom, they closed their doors. So we've, we've just seen that, it, that as, as, the, uh, as the safety and the caution is continuing to spread through society, um, we saw an opportunity to, uh, uh, I think one, one, uh, one writer called it, and 
an entrepreneurial, um, um, uh, what did he call it? Uh, he called me, I can't remember now, but I'll think about it. But it was uh, something to do with uh, being ethical while at the same time um, knowing that you could still fulfill your mission, which is to share these human narratives with each other. Especially right now, a lot of my friends are talking about, you know, and I'm Netflixing. Anybody got some new ideas? You know, uh, I want to watch some movies this weekend. What's it? So it's wonderful to be able to still tell them, right? As opposed mm -hmm. to, hey, go to the uh, go to the theater and watch my film, which is right now kind of, you know, it's unethical to say that. <laughs> yeah, right, right, yeah. So yeah, it's, but it's really great weird to be able to still say, yeah. Come see my new I, film. Yeah, exactly. View it at Did home. you know? Yeah, it's that's a great, uh, especially you know if you uh, even just by yourself, but uh, if you have a few friends, you watch a movie. Uh, I think it's like twenty dollars or whatever it is. Uh, it's actually even cheaper than if you went to the theater. Exactly. Exactly. So, did you know Gary before uh, the movie? I did not. Gary is good friends. Um, I did a couple of films um, with the uh, actor Benjamin Bratt, Law and Order, Miss Congeniality. So me and Benjamin did a film, a Taylor Hatford film, Hollywood Pictures, um, Blood In, Blood Out. Uh, I love that movie. Film. Uh, I think that, I was, yeah. I'm sorry to interrupt you, just, I always think that's not like a really, I think it's a really underrated movie that, because uh, I, I like, uh, kind of mafia movies of all, all, you know, uh, I guess the uh, mob movies, whatever, but I don't think that one gets enough credit. And uh, it does seem that uh, people yeah. do like it, who like it, but I do think it deserves a lot more uh, notoriety. Hollywood pictures. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was supposed to win awards in his day. It had, you know, pedigree Academy award winning director, Taylor Hackford. He had produced La Bamba, mm -hmm. uh, you know, incredible Chicano writer, Jimmy Santiago Baca, and then you know, and me and Benjamin Bratt in the in the leads. You know, it was one of it was one of Billy Bob Thornton's first films. Yeah. Uh, Ding Rains, Michael T. Williamson. It had a good cast. Um, but the problem was that before, right? Again, talking about uh, releases, right, and the disruption of society, the L.A. riots happened right before mm -hmm. it was released. So at that point. Hollywood Pictures, which is actually Disney, right, is their parent company, they felt ethically that they could not promote a film that had gang violence, not realizing that really the narrative was about these three brothers. You know, I was a Chicano yeah. artist, even though I was a gang member, I was a Chicano artist. So there's over 50 incredible Chicano art. And now uh, Cheech Marine just opened up the big uh, uh, art Chicano Art Gallery in Riverside. So again, we were way, Taylor was way ahead of the curve on that narrative. Um, but they'd had some blowback from another film called America Me that Edward James almost had directed. It yeah. had a similar uh, storyline, but was a lot darker. Uh, and so I think they were kind of scared of that, especially post-riot. And so they mm -hmm. kind of, again, shelved it, or actually they released it briefly as Bound by Honor. It has it has two titles actually. Yeah. So there's movie posters out there as Bamba, but nobody knew it was Blood and Blood Out. You know, uh, press mm -hmm. is so important. We've been promoting it as Blood and Blood Out. So it got shelved. But when it came out on 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 video, they changed the name back, and then the work 
you know, and once people shared the film, they started sharing it like, like candy because it was an incredible piece of work. It really yeah, is. Again, it. another role that I'm quite proud of. Well, mm -hmm. on the, uh, Benjamin's brother, Peter Brad is a director. Peter mm -hmm. Brad has a documentary about Dolores Huerta, who's Cesar Chavez's right hand woman. Uh, and one of the main creators of the, of the uh, United Farm Workers movement. And so mm -hmm. Dolores, whose sto story has been very underserved because of how big Cesar is, uh, 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 Peter Bratt, Benjamin's brother, directed this documentary. But he got started years ago with independent film uh, that premiered, a lot of them premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. But they didn't have much commercial success because they were so auteur. One of them was Follow Me Home, which starred myself, Alfre Woodard, uh, Benjamin Bratt, Salma Hayek, um, and it never got seen. It was a hit at the 95 Sundance Film Festival, but it was about four artists of color traveling to the White House and painting a multicultural mural on the White House. It talked about race relations, and it was a little mm -hmm. too cutting edge for Hollywood. Years later, he made a film called La Mission that starred myself, Benjamin Bratt, um, and it did really well at Sundance. And again, without distribution, without major studio distribution, at that time, Facebook in 2010 was just starting to be to take off as a, as, as a viral way to, to, to advertise. And so we used Facebook and we used social media to get people to the theaters. And we were able to make back half our money. Um, on a theatrical run, on a mini theatrical independent run. And so that's when I realized the power of the social networking and that platform. And I said to myself, huh, an independent can compete without any television ads on this. So I already saw kind of the future there. Well, Peter is a good friend of Gary's. So when Gary had this project, he called Peter and said, hey, look, I've got these Latino characters. Who do you think would like to work on this? And right away, Peter said, you got to get Jesse Borrego. Pound for pound, he's, again, one of the most underrated Latino actors in the industry. Uh, and so, you know, Gary loved my work. So he called me, not thinking he'd get any play. And I read the character and said, absolutely. Carlos, a pizza chef a culinary master, a guy with a dream, of course. And, uh, you know, thankfully, when I got on the set, Gary, being a very intuitive director, let me run with it, you know? And uh, I tell directors and writers, I say, look, if I elaborate or if I ad-lib, you have to understand that it's based on what you've created. You know, I'm never going to, I'm never not going to be true to what you've written and created. And I'm just going to make Carlos more three-dimensional. And I think that's what directors uh, really love about what I do, is that once I get on the set, I bring the characters to life. Yeah. Um, and your, your character definitely has a lot of passion for the food, and it comes off, you know, very realistic. And uh, is that something, like, you could uh, you could relate with the character? I Maybe mean, not necessarily food, but, you know, passion with uh, – this. that's his art, his food. and. Uh, your passion would yeah. be you know, acting or, or dancing or, you know, the, the arts. I grew up on uh, listening to my father's music. My father was uh, an accomplished uh, accordion player in the Tex-Mex music scene, a contemporary of Flaco Jimenez. Mm -hmm. uh, they're from the same neighborhood. They're from the same uh, group of guys that came out of that neighborhood playing that Tex-Mex music. So I grew up listening to that 
style of music and endeared me to my culture because, uh, you know, it's Mexican-American music. So to me, I saw Chicanos and Mexican-American culture as very bilingual and very bicultural from the beginning. But the one who really fed that into me was my grandmother, my father's mother. And she fed the music. She would teach me what the songs meant. She kept me bilingual. Uh, she kept me culturally relevant. And she was an incredible cook. Every day, every week, she would make a fresh pot of beans that would last us through the week. Every day, she was making fresh tortillas, flour tortillas made by hand. And so it was a process of this was normal life for me. You know, we were, by and large, our, our, our parents weren't around too much uh, at a certain point in our life. And so our grandmother was... Uh, a very strong maternal figure and that included the food. And so I think, uh, you know, loving, loving my culture, loving my grandmother <coughs> and being raised on Mexican American cuisine, which is to me the most delicious. We always laugh as we go, well, you know, we eat, you know, you, we ate Mexican yesterday. It's like, yes, for us, Tex-Mex Mexican American <laughs> food is everyday food. It's comfort food. So, you know, uh-huh. And, you know, you, there's variations within that cuisine, so you can eat it every day. Mm-hmm. Well, as a kid growing up, you know, growing up in a, in a working-class home, yeah, there's staples every single day. You know, like, like I told you, there's always tortillas, there's always beans, there's always rice, there's always something. Mm-hmm. So uh, I grew up with the love of food uh, as a comfort. And Carlos relates to this because of the death of his mother. You know, it's not just this dream that's left, you know, uh, the, the actor who wound up playing, uh, Salvador, who wound up playing, uh, my father in the, in the film was so delightful, but he just, to me, reminded me of the people that I grew up with. And so I kind of, uh, in my mind, in my backstory created this figure of my mother as this loving you know, maternal figure that would feed me very much like my grandmother. So it was easy to relate to that part and how food could be linked to the emotion of a loved one and to love a family. Uh, You know, when he does that, he brings Bobby over to his house for taste testing. He's there at his nephew's house uh, with his family members. Uh, So he's testing not on society at large, but on his family. You know, he believes in his family, you know, uh, when he's looking at investors, you know, he says, my father worked, uh, you know, over 50 years as a migrant worker and he saved up money, but I don't want to risk his money on my dream. You know, uh, the same thing with his, uh, his nephew brilliantly portrayed by our own producer, Louis G, you know, Mm -hmm. Louis is a big fan of blood and blood out and of my work. And he was just flabbergasted that he was working with me. But I, I put him through his paces as a young actor. I go, okay, you want to be an actor? And this is how it goes. Uh, and it was, it was hilarious because uh, uh, as a producer, he'd come and pick me up every morning from the hotel where we were, where we were staying at to go film. And we get to talk about, you know, what, what, uh, what was going on with the production. Uh, you know, he'd uh, use me as a sounding board. But one morning we had to do our scenes. So as soon as I got in the car, I started hitting him with my lines as Carlos, right? Mm-hmm. And he was kind of like, 
huh? Huh? Because he was still in producer mode. He goes, uh, uh, dude, you know, well, I haven't looked at the scene and I haven't. I said, uh-uh, this is where it starts. Come on, start answering. Just let's start doing the scene. And I just threw him for a loop and he right-ended himself and we started working and working and working. And before we knew it, we were ready to do the scene. And I told him, look, you know, you want to be an actor? I'll show you how to be an actor. This is how it goes. And he just has a natural talent. So, you know, as my nephew in the film, he was brilliant. But the character itself, again, shows how Gary really loves and respects the Latino culture because, uh, you know, the, he, my nephew and his wife had these very successful taqueria trucks. Mm-hmm. They came to the rescue at a certain point in the narrative. Yeah. Uh, and you have all these wonderful Latino characters. You know, you got uh, Reynaldo Gallegos, who even though he plays, uh, even though he plays the investor who winds up uh, uh, shysting us, you know, he's just such a lovable character. And, you you know, Reynaldo's worked on some big sets, some Clint Eastwood sets. And Mm -hmm. so, you know, he came with all of that pedigree, played around with us for a few, for two or three days and created this great character that you just can't help but love. Mm-hmm. But again, he was exemplifying a successful Latino character, successful Latino businessman, mm-hmm. uh, albeit on the shady side. But it was great to be <laughs> able to see these wonderful, beautiful Latino characters in mm-hmm. an American narrative, uh, mm-hmm. which to me, is the, that's the main point of my career. Even uh, when I play my, uh, my uh, evil characters, you know, uh, I don't know if you ever saw my George Washington King, the Skinner character, Dexter. Oh yeah, I'm a, I'm a, I, I honestly, not just you here, but I think that's the most underrated season of Dexter. Uh, I think, uh, right? I think a lot of it because it comes before season four with the Trinity Killer, but season three, uh, you and Jimmy Smith stuff. That's and that's one of my Ooh, favorite seasons of the show. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Smith was incredible in it, but again, yeah. you know, you give us Latino actors a chance to to portray American characters. We we will round them out. We'll we'll bring the reality and the humanity to it, you know? And so I try to do that even with characters like that. And so with, uh, with a character like Carlos that had all of this, uh, you know, this, this, these wonderful layers of, uh, of humanity, you know, as an actor, it's a joy, you know, and, and, and ultimately you can just be yourself as an artist. And I think those are the things that a director really enjoys. And I kept telling her, you know, in an indie situation, like I said, you have a, a producer with a producer hat, and then he's also an actor in the film. You had a lot of that going on. You had, you had, like I said, incredible crew members, but they were all wearing three different hats. You know, uh, the director himself is wearing a producer slash director slash writer slash editor hat. So in all of those, it's kind of overwhelming. <clears throat> so I kept telling Gary, I kept saying, look, when you're able to take a deep breath and the production is over and you've gotten past this phase, you're going to be able to look at this thing and you're going to be able to sit there and see what these actors have brought you. They've brought you gold. I'm telling you, you're going to be able to fashion the best piece of jewelry you can because everybody here is bringing you top carrot gold. And he looked at me kind of like with his, you know, bleary three, four production 
director's eye and <laughs> you know what i was talking about he's like yeah. oh okay but i'm just worried about if we're gonna make our day today because we've got 16 <laughs> setups <laughs> yeah. and we're gonna you know and we've only got two more days in this bowling alley and i'm like uh just patted him on the back and said keep going don't worry about it you get you're doing good but you're doing good buddy <laughs> yeah yeah uh, b- before i do forget because you brought up uh, tortillas and when i was in uh corpus christi uh the prez family mm-hmm. they ran this uh the south texas underground film festival which showed my short and i had a great time and they were great people oh and they congratulations had, that's great thank Neil. you yeah it was awesome and they they had a and um mariello uh perez kept telling me that you have to make sure that you have homemade tortillas. You can't go to a place that, yes. that has like, uh, and, and so I didn't, you know, Store I didn't bar. know too much. Exactly. exactly. And so she had a, they had a food truck come in um, for one of the after parties at the festival. And, uh, and she's like this, they, they have the good stuff. And she's telling me, get the carnitas. And, uh, and yeah, you could tell the, for anyone out there who hasn't had homemade tortillas, it's like night and day. It's completely different. And you won't want to go it's to Taco Bell or anything. Different. Right. Yeah. yeah, because remember that after after uh, a certain point, uh, the industry became mechanized, especially when the, the superstores, uh, the supermarkets started selling tortillas. So they were like, well, wait a minute. You know, it's a long process for a woman to make it by hand, even with a tortilla uh, a machine, you kind of, the, there's still a lot of hand you know, that was one of the great things about uh, Carlos's character and the style yeah, of pizza with the he was making. Yeah, <laughs> with the, yeah, the, the, the Neapolitan style is very hand. It's a, it's a gesture. There's no flipping in it. It's not like the big flippy ones. But there is a kind of a hand flip that you do as you're spreading the dough. It's very specific. Uh, and it reminded me a lot of how my grandmother would knead the dough and how she would spread out the tortillas. So it's a, it's a very laborious process for one tortilla. So when it got mechanized and industrialized and they started creating the tortilla machines, which you can run the dough through and it just flattens them out, doesn't have the same feel, doesn't have the same love that you put in that. You know, there's, a, there's that great scene where I'm trying to teach uh, uh, the other cook, the other chef, yeah. again, another great actor, Jai, who really fleshed out this little side character, uh, and really brought humanity to a Latino character, but I'm teaching him to put that love in the dough. you got to punch the dough is the way you do it. You pull and you punch and that mm-hmm. kind of creates, you know, unifies the glutens in that type of pizza dough. So I'm explaining all of this, but there's an action that you have to do. Uh, and it just, again, reminded me of the love that my grandmother would put in it. So uh, you remember like Water for Chocolate, another great independent oh, yeah. film by Alfonso Arau. There was that whole idea that every emotion that the woman would go through while she was cooking was transferred to people eating the food. So if she felt sad and she was crying, uh, <laughs> that everybody was was crying after they ate the food. If if she was passionate, you know, and in love, then everybody got turned on after they ate the food. <laughs> <laughs> so there was a lot of that idea of you got to put the love in the dough, and that's what people taste when they mm-hmm. taste. You know, and he even had uh, a pizza named the Elisa after his mother who had passed away because it's a thing of beauty, he said, because it's a thing of beauty. And, uh, you know, that idea of putting that i grew up with that my you know my grandmother 
you know, would put that in her food. So that's what you're tasting when you taste one of those homemade tortillas, man. You're tasting all that, that love of life and love of, of, of humanity. And uh, I'm glad you were able to taste one. So you know what a, what a good homemade tortilla tastes like. Yeah, it was excellent. And then it was uh, funny watching uh, the movie Oregon, uh, Phoenix, Oregon, because like I said, they had the food truck there. Then you guys bring in the food truck. I was like, hey, I, I had the similar experience with a, with a really nice, a great food truck. Yeah. <laughs> well, it, that's good that you went to Corpus Christi, which is, man, that's at the tip of South Texas. And, mm-hmm. you, were, and you were able to uh, actually experience uh, something good, man. That's great. They showed you love. That means they, that means they showed you love, Neil. They did indeed. Yeah. A great family. They invited me back out anytime I want to come out. They said I can even stay at their place. So, uh, a lot of love to the Perez family. They're, they're great. And, and their son, Elvis, who, uh, he did kind of steal my camera a little bit and, and film some stuff. So, uh, but it's so anyway, it. you're inspiring <laughs> the next the generation. I exactly. love that. So if there's some weird you like uh, zoom ins and zoom out on my, on a, on a couple of my interview videos, that's cause Elvis was my uh, cameraman on those ones, but. amen creative and and, you know and that's one of the reasons why it was easy for me to say yes to gary because Uh i know that oregon supports their filmmakers but i also know that they're not an industry state Mm -hmm. so those filmmakers still have to find a way to get their incredible filmmaking out of the state and how do you do that you know uh, one of the things that happened was that they didn't get into any of the major festivals and they were kind of, uh, you know, they were kind of disappointed by this. Uh, and they thought, that's it. Our film's not good enough. We're never going to see the light of day. And I told him, I said, no, 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 no. Right now you have to understand that, it, that the industry and the markets are very saturated. So mm-hmm. people have to make choices. Your film doesn't have this incredibly controversial subject matter. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the A-list, A-list stars, you know, but you've got a solid, to me, star quality actor, James LeGros. I go, you've got another star quality actor who brings along all of these diverse fan bases in me. Not only that, our chemistry together, I already know what I'm going to do. I love James's work. So I know that if we get together and we do our magic together, that's exponential right there. Now you bring in Lisa Edelstein, who's an incredible actress and just her and James have history. So that's going to come out on camera. So as I saw, as I saw it exponentially growing, I knew that there was the potential for this to go beyond its, its, its boundaries. So I told him, don't worry about the festivals. The festivals are just markets. You've got the freedom of not having been bought at a market. So you've got the freedom to show this thing ad nauseum anywhere and anytime you want. And that kind of led them to, did Gary talk to you at all about what, how they I haven't initially. Talked to Gary. I haven't talked to Gary. Oh, okay. So what they did is they wound up wrapping two RVs. And this is again, credit to Ben. Piper and his wife, who are uh, who are the, uh, uh, the executive producers, they decided to buy a couple of RVs, wrap the RVs with the posters, with all of our pictures at Phoenix, Oregon on it, drive across the country to as many places as would allow them to screen this. 
Let them tell you the story of this incredible two, three month journey that they took together. The filmmakers jumped in these two RVs, traveled around. That's how I got them down to South Texas, actually, to my film festival, Cine Festival. And they would show up in these RVs with our pictures and <laughs> they would show this film. And through that, they were able to get enough numerics. They were able to show that they had an audience in these different parts of the country. And that's how we were able to get our distributor. And that is just innovation. You know, mm-hmm. necessity is the mother of invention. And I think they were just able to take an independent project that was completely theirs, but that they had invested their hard-earned work, dollars, blood, sweat, and tears, and continue to get it, give it back. And I think that's brilliant. You know, and the only way you can do that is if you've got no ties to an industry or to a distributor mm-hmm. uh, or to a festival, you know, which creates limitations because it's so competitive. It's such a competitive market. So we took ourselves out of the competition. We, 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 we turned into, you know, we turned into the curve, which is to be a completely independent film, do what we were able to do. And that led us to this point. And now we're able to do that again. We're able to do this so quickly. The industry can't do this because they're behemoths. They can't pivot as quickly as within the space of a week or two. We were able to pivot this quickly. And thank you again to, you know, uh, Rye Levy uh, and, uh, and the, his distribution company and what, mm-hmm. what he was able to do with us. And again, just be able to pivot so quickly um, and create this view at home option which now has become the norm. You know, it's the new thing. We are on the cutting edge of how people are going to get their latest projects. You know, but we were only able to do that because we didn't have a studio. We didn't have a big distribution company. Uh, and that's the beauty of it. So we're in actuality, and I, I explained this to Louis G., our producer. I said, you realize we have the potential to have this film viewed by more people than if they just went to the theater. Mm-hmm. If you even sold out all of your screenings, you'd still only have a limited amount of numbers and a li- limited amount of screens. I go, the potential now is to send this into everyone's home who wants to see it this weekend. So you are, have the potential to create more numbers than if they were physically able to go to the theater. I go, this is a cutting edge thing that you're mm-hmm. doing. I said, so, uh, the, and the beauty of it is they're going to enjoy this film. Oh, you know, def- yeah, definitely. So it's, it's a, like I said, a relatable film. And you mentioned about um, ageism. Uh, right away, I liked that it was all, not necessarily older people, but people, you know, it wasn't all like 20-year-olds in the movie. And, uh, and like I think sometimes uh, that audience is like forgotten. And uh, there's a lot of people that are over Absolutely. 20 that, that watch, a lot more people that are over 20 that watch movies. Hello, and we have uh, we have jobs. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> we right. have jobs. We've got careers. We've made living. So mm-hmm. we're we're the one. Usually, who's the one that pays when everybody goes to the movies anyway? <laughs> right, right. It's you like, know, uh-huh. you know, it's 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 our age range. It's our age bracket, dude. You know, <laughs> we're the ones with the disposable income. We're the ones that uh, pay for everyone <laughs> in the family right. to go to. Yeah. some event so you know it winds up being us anyway it should be about us 
Right. And usually it's, I mean, obviously there's exceptions. There's a lot of great young actors, stuff, but someone who's lived some life is a, it tends to be a more interesting person in general, and uh, which uh, makes a more interesting actor, I would say. Yes. I mean, come on. You're talking about uh, even just the history that James Legro has as an actor, not, you know, not even looking at what he's possibly gone through in his life. Right. That brings that he's able to bring to the screen, you know, and that's another thing because you know, the character of Bobby is so complex, you know, and uh, the tendency is with uh, you know, depending on the chemistry between those two lead actors, mm-hmm. Carlos, you know, the character is so strong, you know, that I, you know, I kept telling Gary, I go, whatever happens, you know, your instinct is to you know bring the entertainment and the you know, the, the, the levity to the screen, I go, but fight against that because this story is about a man, a character, Bobby going through this midlife crisis. Mm -hmm. And so you have to, you have to really pay homage to Bobby's character, what he's going through. And not only that, but I had seen uh, a little bit of what, uh, before any of us got there, James Legros, you know, going in an independent setting, you'd love to be able to, you know, get to the uh, the pathos and 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 the dark moments at the end after the characters had a chance to, you know, the actors had a chance to get his legs under him. But on an indie budget, you can't do that. So right away, the first thing they could get out of the way was all of Bobby's journey, you know, uh, right. internal journey, all of his subtext, all of the moments when he's alone and he's dealing with uh, with with the, the, the emotional journey on his own. Mm-hmm. And I think the work that James Legros was able to do in that little RV, in that little Airstream set, which again, a tribute to the Oregon filmmakers, you realize that the set that they shot in inside the Airstream was not actually the Airstream because the Airstream was too difficult to shoot in. Right. You know, it's, small, it's so yeah. small. Mm-hmm. So they created the set. So that's actually a set that was built. Brilliant, mm-hmm. beautiful stuff. Yeah, that's artistry. I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Yes, it, that's the art of filmmaking. Mm-hmm. You know, and then Patrick Neary's photography, the, the DP, a director of photography. Oh my God, talk about an underrated talent. You know, he should be in Hollywood shooting big budget films. Mm-hmm. You know, but this is a guy that's been working. Uh, Patrick's been working with Gary for years now, Gary and Annie for years. So these guys are all in each other's zone. But to bring us all together, you know, and, uh, you know, James Legro had worked with them before, but I didn't know these guys. But I saw the chemistry. And, you know, w- when I got to see what James had done with the internal journey of Bobby on film, I knew we had a winner. I said, there it is. There it is. This is the movie. James, what James is doing with Bobby character is the movie. So at that point, I knew that my Carlos had to be in line with that journey. Um, And in that sense, you know, as an actor, again, as an artist, when you see gold, it's like, oh my God, okay, how can I make myself the silver of this gold? How can I make myself, you know, another aspect of this gold, of this golden opportunity? Uh, and so it, it becomes a delight, you know, it becomes a delight as an actor to work on set mm-hmm. like that. As difficult as it is because of the budgetary constraints, you know, 
Uh, when you mentioned uh, James Legros, you know, you told him or you, you know, advised him not to like uh, play up too much of the comedy. I, I totally think that's what makes the movie work because he, he, that really could have been like a caricature instead of like a character. And it would have been just a completely different film, which could have been fine on its own. But this this is more, you know, there's comedic elements to the movie, but it's got a lot of heart to it. And it's a real guy as opposed, you know, to just like a straight up, you know, comedy role. And, you know, what's brilliant about that, again, that speaks to the artistry of Gary, his writing and his directing, because he instinctively knew that. Uh, but when you when you're in production, you know, uh, a lot of what James was doing you have to know as an outsider, you have to know what's going on, you know, because uh, as an actor, you have to kind of stay in character. So Bobby, you know, himself and James staying in character, you know, you kind of have this kind of low key guy who's really trying to stay within the, stay within his groove, you know, so he can be true to what's going on when the camera rolls, you know? And so the tendency is to think that maybe there's nothing going on, you know, there's no, there's no sparks, but if you know your artistry and you know, as a filmmaker, you can tell what's happening. And I saw the gold happening right away. Again, I got to visually see what he had done already on camera, but I also got to see what he was doing as we were doing our stuff. And so again, as actors, it's collaborative, it's give and take. There is no, I'm me and you're you. There's mm-hmm. nothing but sharing. And so as friends, I knew that we had to seem like we'd known each other since childhood, since, since high school. Uh, and so as we started to get into each other's rhythms off the bat, one of the beautiful things about it was you saw why these guys were friends. Me and James uh, who actually, you know, fell in love with each other right off the bat, uh, you know, a bro, uh, a bromance right off the bat. <laughs> we were able to bring that to the characters, but in a way that made sense to who these characters were and their journeys. And so it's incredible because at a certain point, you see that the reason Carlos is the way he is, is because he has this midlife depression. He's, his wife passed away. He's lost his dream. You know, and he has this incredible speech when he's trying to get Bobby into uh, buying into the idea of investing in this Bolarama. He has this incredible little speech where he's just, he goes, what's left? You know, we're yeah. a few years from 60. We're, you know, we've lost all our dreams. What's left? Oh, uh, you know, you grow old and then you die. And the way he right. says it, it's just total, total opposite to who he is. And then there's another point in the film where he's kind of losing it after he realizes it's going to cost so much to fix the bowling machine. And then you have Bobby pumping him up and going, Hey, don't worry. We got this, you know, we can do this. And so you kind of see the yin yang in both of them. And that's humanity. That's friendship. That's where you realize, Oh, the reason they're friends is because there's a part of him in him and a part of him in him and right. they relate to each other and mm-hmm. each one needs the other. And if we were able to bring that in an inkling to these characters, that's, I think what people relate to 
you know, not just the Bobby character, you know, and Gary always says that because they go, well, you know, you know, how did you write this and how did you inspire this? And Gary goes, I think it's just that every morning you wake up and sometimes you're a little more Carlos and sometimes you're a little more Bobby, you know, <laughs> that's very, that's a and, very, yeah. and this narrative is about Bobby. So, you know, we want to follow Bobby's journey because it's the, it's kind of the deeper one, you know, he needs Carlos to get him out of the, uh, the loop that he's stuck in, but Carlos needs Bobby to make his dream succeed, you know, and, you know, at the end, after it all falls flat and, you know, they kind of lost touch with each other and then they come back together and, you know, Bobby turns to Carlos and he goes, you're really going to make me a partner in your new venture. You don't have to do that, you know? And Carlos says, of course, you're my bro. And that's, you know, in a nutshell, what that theme is all about, you know, uh, the same thing with Bobby and Tanya, you know, their romantic relationship you know, is based on their two experiences, but they're so totally different. So only friendship is what links them together. The fact that they really, really care for each other as human beings. And I think right now that's the type of message that we need to spread, you know, care for each other as human beings, society, you know? Yeah. I know. I have a question about just like uh, acting in general uh, about chemistry. Is that something like, um, you could work on, or is it something like you either have it or you don't with, with like another acting partner? It's a, it's a little of both. I mean, you hope mm -hmm. that when you, uh, that, w that when you get on the set and when you start to work, that when you start to create art together, that there is that chemistry. Uh, but I also think that you can work that and you can bring it, you know, uh, every situation is different, uh, depending on the budget, uh, depending on the hierarchy, uh, directors can create that feeling. Um, other actors, lead actors can create that feeling. You know, James was so giving to me the minute we got on the set. So I knew that, uh, you know, I, all I had to do was be myself. Uh, but I also think you can really, uh, as a human being and as a professional create that climate. Um, so I've worked in situations where, uh, you know, it was, it was a tough, it was a tough set, you know, but I was able to make my partner, my uh, scene partner feel comfortable enough um, to give me the goods, so to speak. That's what I call it. You know, give me the goods. Uh, and, and I think it's a process. So I think it's a little of both. Uh, uh, but ultimately, I love the ones where the chemistry is already there. You know, that's what I think really... Um, really, really excited me about this project because, you know, you work on indie projects and you realize that quite possibly they won't see the light of day until 10, 20 years down the line. I mean, even look at Blood In, Blood Out, which was a major studio release. I didn't get to see the fruits of that until years later when it came out on DVD uh, and the director's cut and people really, really uh, got a chance to see it. Mm -hmm. So you have the reality that quite possibly, so, you know, you get on an indie set and you, it ain't going great. And you kind of do your work, you get your little check and you, you walk away. But I think in this, in this instance, when I saw the work that me and James were doing, when I saw the work, uh, as a director and that Annie and the production crew was bringing, when I saw the work that the fringe actors 
we're bringing. You know, it's very difficult in a in a, in a independent budget because they usually bring you in for a day or two because they're saving money and they kick you mm-hmm. out. You don't really have a chance to get into the groove, uh, uh, you know, of the collaboration between the actors to create these uh, well-rounded characters. But you know, like I said, all of these guys came in and kicked butt. You know, uh, Ray Gallegos, Diedrich Bader, Kevin Corrigan. And so I think they kind of fed into that camaraderie and that feeling on the set that we were all backing each other up in this little independent budget narrative. And Mm -hmm. so I think, but I got to see it right after Bobby. I was the first one there. So I got to see that as me and James were working. And then I got to see it when, uh, when Lisa showed up, Lisa Edelstein, and, and I saw her, Tanya, and she kind of vibed our little chemistry, mine and James's chemistry. And then here comes Ray. And then, you know, the last guys we were waiting for, because we hadn't cast them yet, were, uh, you know, Kyle in the beginning, very critical role, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's gotta have, he's got to have the right comedic stance. Uh, otherwise people won't watch it past the first 10, 15 minutes, you know, same thing with the Al character at the end, you know, you have this great story, but you get to the end and if this guy's not funny, if this actor doesn't, you know, have chemistry with us, then nobody's going to watch the end of the film. Very critical characters. Mm -hmm. And they're not getting there. We haven't cast them until the end of the, of the filming production. So I was stressing out. I was like, Whoa, these these little characters could make or break it. Um, and as soon as Diedrich showed up, I was like, okay, we've got gold right here. We've got gold at the beginning. And then when Kevin showed up, and same thing with Kevin Corrigan. I mean, he just showed up and he had an idea of what this character was. That was, oh my God, it just blew it out of the water. All of our expectations. And so I think once I saw this happening, and it was a cumulative process, that I saw from the first week that I got there to the second week when Tanya, when Lisa showed up to the third week when Diedrich showed up to the last week of filming when Kevin showed up. So by the end of this production, I, I mean, I would show up on set and I was singing. I was, I had a bounce in my step and everybody thought I was just in character as the character of Carlos. <laughs> and I said, no, no. I said, you guys don't realize this, but we have a stellar cast. We have a great film, uh, you know, and, and like I said, Gary and Annie were in the middle of, uh, you know, World War Three. So they were kind of like, yeah, whatever. We haven't slept in months, you know, and I said, no, believe me, when you go back, you're going to see what you've got here. Uh, and I felt that about every aspect of the theater from, you know, from the local actors. There was, there was some great local, you know, you're talking about Oregon. You got the Ashland, uh, you got the uh, Oregon Shakespeare Festival there. So you've got some great, talented people in the state of Oregon nearby. So it was great to be able to tap into a lot of that talent, uh, uh, you know, and link that up with the Hollywood talent. And, mm-hmm. and, but again, I think everybody bought into the tempo uh, that Gary, the director-writer, and that James LeGros set as professional artists. And I think we all just kind of tagged into that, and it exponentially began to grow. And I think the depth of this story is what comes across, you know, the many layers, uh, the delightful characters, you know, definitely. And, uh, on. It, uh, from the last couple of years, I've done a lot of, especially last year with my own uh, short film, done a lot of festivals. And I noticed that like all the different areas have their own group of uh, filmmakers and their own community. So 
uh, for people out there, I think, you know, you could find your own little film community, like uh, uh, Boston, I've been to Buffalo, uh, this uh, yes. Corpus Christi, and they all Please. they all have that. It's it's a uh, it's it's support very cool to be part of these little community. independent film festivals. Yes, people always ask me why I support the local film festival here, and I tell them I go because there's very few festivals that are specifically focusing on Latino themed films. I go Cine Festival here in San Antonio is one of the longest running Latino film festivals, but they function under under a very limited budget. Uh, as a city cultural center. So that is just one program that they have to each year fund. But if it wasn't for that festival, a lot of these little independent Latino films wouldn't get a chance to reach their core audience. Same thing with, uh, you know, the, the little independent film that you went to. Uh, a lot of these film festivals have to be supported by people going to them, sharing uh, in their programming and sharing uh, in their networking. Thank you to the Ashland Independent Film Festival because that's exactly what happened with this film. Because it didn't get accepted into any of the majors, you know, the filmmakers felt that there wasn't going to be some some uh, sort of a, a flagship festival to feature this. You know, fast forward to the Ashland Independent Film Festival, which has a great audience. Not only are they a sophisticated audience, but they've grown in the last few years to be one of the leading uh, outsider film festivals on the cutting edge. Uh, So because we were Oregon made, they were delighted to have us be one of their big premieres. So they get a premiere, which they usually, if it's a big film they want, they usually lose the premiere to Sundance or, you know, to one of the other big film festivals. So here they were, they were getting to show a first time premiere. It's one of their own and it's got a stellar cast. Uh, And like I said, they were able to exemplify Oregon filmmakers because most of our production crew had films themselves that were entered in the festival. Uh, And so it was love all the way around. But because of that uh, premiere at the Ashland Independent Film Festival, we got a lot of play. You know, we were able to get some laurels off of that. And I think that's what's important for independent films is really get out to your core audience. Festivals is the way to do that initially before you've got a distribution. But if you, you know, if you don't have that kind of pedigree and that type of push and you don't get into one of the majors, then you depend on these interim festivals and these smaller independent festivals to get these uh, works like Phoenix, Oregon out to your core audience. And I reiterate, if it hadn't been for that, we wouldn't have had that first leg up to then say, hey, we've got something here. Let's keep it going. How do we keep it going? Um, And that's what it's all about. It's been a long journey. But again, all those links that, uh, you know, you keep trying to link up so that they they become one artistic loop. You know, they're all coming to fruition, including the view at home option. You know, like I said, it's it's just Mm -hmm. just serendipity that it's uh, serendipitous. It's all coming together at this time, you know. Yeah, definitely. Just real quick about Cine Festi- Cine Festival. You mentioned that was your festival. Now, are you like associated with them? Do you help run it or is it just your local festival? Uh, I've actually been a champion of it. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, I, I don't, uh, the, it's, it's run out of the Guadalupe Cultural Arts Center in the west mm-hmm. side of San Antonio. But it's, uh, it's, it's been around for about 40 years now. Mm-hmm. So it was started, you know, and it's, it's, 
it's become a very, very relevant festival uh, to uh, Latino themed films and to filmmakers uh, that want to show their project to a core audience. You know, I was able to bring Peter Bratt's film, the one I told you we made with Benjamin Bratt, mm-hmm. La Mission, uh, which again had a lot of play at Sundance, but didn't get a distribution deal. You know, none of the majors wanted to pay the piper. And so the, the boys, Peter Bratt and Benjamin Bratt, and I walked away from Sundance without a distribution deal. And, you know, this had Benjamin Bratt as the lead, you know, it had a great story. You know, the Sundance audience loved it. It was one of the hits of Sundance. But at that time, again, saturation in the market, there was already several Latino-themed films that had been bought and sold at Sundance. Mm -hmm. So it was a buyer's market. So they came to La Mision and they said, well, you're independent, but we're going to lowball you. You know, that's the industry. That's the business part of it, right? Even though we had a great film, La Mision is again, like Phoenix, Oregon, one of those great independent films that should have had major studio But again, it's a business. So at that point, you know, nobody felt that they wanted to put themselves out there. And so, you know, the, the producers, Benjamin Brad and Peter Brad, the filmmakers, really had investors from Northern California that they were concerned with. So they said, no, we don't feel it's right to take a raw deal just because we want to get into the theaters. We are going to hold back and we're going to try to do it ourselves. Uh, and at that point, we used social media and social networking. Well, I got it to Cine Festival. I said, look, I said, let's close the loop. Your core audience is in San Antonio, my hometown. Bring it to Cine Festival, show it to this audience. And I guarantee when you're ready to come back and show it independently, your core audience is going to be ready. And they said bet. So they came down here, Peter and Ben made an appearance here. We had Mayor Julian Castro, Julian, who was one of our, uh, you know, Democratic, uh, 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 was running for president uh, this mm-hmm. past uh, election. Uh, Julian was mayor of San Antonio at that time. But Julian and his brother Joaquin Castro, one of our state representatives, are big supporters of Latino cinema. So they came. We had the entire city of San Antonio come out. We had a you know wonderful uh, get together with the Brat brothers. Um, so our core audience was, was you know flabbergasted and excited that we had Peter and you know Benjamin as one of their heroes from Blood and Blood Out. So the mm-hmm. fact that we had them here, the fact that this film exemplified Latino culture. Uh, and low writing and the story of idea and had a, a deep theme like, like homophobia and, 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 and familial love above all. Uh, and these heavy themes that were running through, the, through the, uh, uh, the filmmaking world but weren't specific to the Latino audience, we brought it to them and they absorbed it and loved it. So that, you know, a year later when the film actually released, I was actually able to get it into the Santicos theaters and my audience made them enough uh, of a, of a dollar for them to be able to make back a lot of their investment. But it was because we closed that loop and Cine Festival was part of that. 
So one of the things that I do is, is years and years and years, I've been championing Cine Festival. I go there, I emcee for them, I bring them the latest films, I make sure that my friends that are in the industry that have films that they want to show, uh, bring it here. Not only that, bring come here themselves. You know, I was able to get Peter Brad here, Benjamin Brad here, Isai Morales, uh, a lot of those filmmakers um, that come from California and that come from other areas. Uh, I tell them you have to come here and meet your core audience because not only are they going, they go there, they will appreciate that, but then they'll support your project. And so I think Cine Festival as as one of those outsider independent. Uh, film festivals has been able to do that for me. And so that's why I support them. Um, you know, I'll probably wind up being the festival director of some of these years, but it's very labor intensive. And so, mm-hmm. you know, as a, as an artist, I, I, I hate commitment, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I have a problem with commitment. So, you know, I'm a, I'm a contract laborer. You hire me, I do my job and then I'm gone. <laughs> right, right. I have a question about, um, cause, um, you know, uh, is it hard to balance both uh, the artistic side and like the business side of the acting world? Because in in my experience, of people I've talked to, if you're like a really, if you have like an art, if you're on the artistic side, you might not be good on the business side, and vice versa. I think people on the on the good business side might not have like an artistic side to them. As someone who's who's yeah, lasted think, so long in the industry, I think in in general, uh, artists have a problem with the business side of it. Uh, there are those actors I know that's, that, that are very, very good about the business side of it. Um, but again, they do that because they're artists and because really what they're good at is when that camera rolls or when that curtain goes up uh, or when they're creating when they're creating a character, writing a character, developing an idea, a narrative, you know, it's all based on human narrative, you know? Uh, And so I learned in art school about film because I went to California Institute of the Arts where I studied, I studied theater and Incarnate Word College here in San Antonio. And then uh, acting, I was in the acting program uh, at California Institute of the Arts, but they teach you acting from the point of view of an art form. Uh, and it was the same thing with film. When we studied film at Cal arts, it was all about the art form and the development of the art form in the 20th century. And so to me, I understood it from its artistic uh, creation. When I got into the business side of it and I started working on the television show fame was my first big job. Um, all of a sudden I saw the business side of it. I saw the studio, I saw the, the connect and the disconnect between the executive office, the executive producers and the studio, which was MGM and the producers on the set and the creators, you know, the directors, the writers, uh, the impact, uh, uh, the time constraints, right? Television is all about time constraints because if you go over, then you're paying, then all of a sudden there's money involved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now the decisions are based on, on money not whether you got what you needed, you know, on, on fame, we had to do these elaborate uh, dance productions because it was a, a school of the arts. So we always, at the end of the week of our filming week, we always had these elaborate uh, um, dance productions that we had to film in the space of a shooting day or two, you know? So we were always crunched for time. There was always, 
you know, and so I saw that a lot of the decisions were being made, not for artistic purposes, but for business purposes, you know? And so that was an awakening there. And then I saw that as an ethical actor and the idea that, wow, I'm, I'm playing a young Chicano kid in a performing arts school, you know, you know, I don't have to play a gang member. I don't have to play. a. I don't have. And then getting into series television in the late eighties and the early nineties, that's all there was, you know, the characters that I was going up for, uh, not being in the, uh, arena of say Andy Garcia and some of the big Latino movie stars that were hitting Antonio Banderas. I didn't have that, that type of pedigree and that type of, uh, of, of, of representation. So a lot of the stuff that I was going up for were these side characters. Mm-hmm. And so I saw right away that the industry side of it was impacting me as an artist because it's okay to say no until the first of the month comes around. Right. right. Then you look back at all of those no's and you think to yourself, you start to second guess yourself. And you start to think to yourself, man, I'm an idiot. And in a sense, that's true because I know actors that make a living out of playing these negative stereotypes, but they are able to pay for their health insurance. They're able to raise families. They're able to send their kids to college. And I appreciate that. I respect that. And I know that many times when that those bills come around that I second guess myself, but I didn't start that way. I didn't start in the industry and in the business. So even as a filmmaker, and then again, it was the same when I got into films, when I got into films after blood and blood out, I got spoiled because mm-hmm. Taylor was so giving to me as a director and as a producer, uh, you know, on a million dollar studio budget, I was the king, you know, Taylor came to me because he knew me from the auditions of La Bamba. And he came to me and he said, look, I remember you from the auditions of La Bamba and I need you to be in blood and blood. And so you're going to help me cast the other guys. Right. And so I was involved in the filmmaking process from the beginning. So I got to see a big studio production and the money that's put behind it. Well, after blood and blood out was over, you know, I went since blood and blood out didn't have any, uh, it didn't have any success. It was considered a flop at that time. I didn't get any play off of that. So I was back to being an unknown, unknown actor. Right. Uh, and so I didn't get into the big auditions that a lot of the other Latino celebrity actors were getting into. So again, I was getting thrown all the side characters. And again, these side characters were the same milieu. So I had to make a choice at that point. Luckily I had the theater. So I went back to doing theater a lot. I worked a lot with Joanne Acolytus out of New York. She was part of that group Mabu Mines uh, in the sixties and seventies. Philip Glass, Joanne Acolytus, Lee, Lee Brewer, Ruth Malachek. And so I think these guys had pedigree. So that fed my artistic side as an actor. Uh, and in the theater world, you know, the, yeah, there's contracts. Yeah, there's a business and an industry side of it, but it's not as lucrative 
as working in the television and film industry. That's the reality of it. So the business that you wind up doing in uh, the equity theater side of it has more to do with sustaining yourself, you know, um, rather than getting ahead. In the television and movie industry, the decisions you make as an actor will make or break, could make or break your career, you know, mm-hmm. and you could have 10 years of feast or you could have, you know, five years of famine, depending on the decisions that you make. Uh, and it, it sucks because that's kind of every, and then every decade you have to reinvent yourself. Because one of the things that the industry does is it tries to pigeonhole. If you have a success as a certain type of character, then every other audition is that type of character. And they keep trying to make lightning strike twice in the same area. And the reality of it is, as a creative, you know that art is an ever-evolving thing. The themes, the current themes, you know, they have to do a lot with what's happening in the world. Uh, But then you get into an industry that's constantly trying to cannibalize intellectual property. So they're always going back to the retro thing, the thing before, or the thing that's successful, you know, Uh, the purchase of Marvel and DC by the movie industry was probably the worst thing that could have ever happened to artistic narrative in films. You know, in cinema, they're going to look back at this in uh, the eras of uh, of filmmaking, you know, uh, and I'm a big fan of movies. So I love the different film eras, you know, even the silent movies. You know, I, I oh, love yeah. to watch yeah. them. Because mm-hmm. that, yeah, that's the visual part of it. And you also get to see what a lot of these people were doing right before they started doing sound, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were filmmakers, you know, at that time. It was a fledgling industry and, and a fledgling uh, art. So they were putting those they were putting those two halves together. Um, But now as a filmmaker uh, and again, having really learned from the indie film world, and uh, I also got to see how the industry distribution, uh, the markets, the buying and selling of these films after they're done, the pitching of ideas, uh, the development of a narrative from a pitch you know, to, uh, you know, to, uh, to, uh, to a screenplay, to an actual production, to getting it greenlit. Uh, I've seen all of these phases and I've, and I'm, I've been a student of the game since mm-hmm. I was young. So I'm, I always pay attention. My first time on a film set, uh, you know, instead of staying in my trailer after getting makeup done, I went to the set and I sat there and I paid attention. You know, my first film was New York Stories and I was in the Martin Scorsese film, Life Lessons. So I thought to myself, Martin Scorsese, I'm going to sit in my trailer and wait for my, yeah. So I sat there and watched, uh, you know, Martin work with uh, Nick Nolte and Rosanna Arquette. And as again, as a student of the game, I'm watching the master at work, you know? Uh, And so it was, to me, I got to see that aspect of it, but I also got to see how, the business and industry side of it is necessary in order for Martin to be able to do his artistry, you know, in order for Mm -hmm. Taylor Hackford to have made blood and blood out, he had to make some sort of a deal, a big money deal with Hollywood pictures. And I also saw how that impacted us because once Hollywood pictures decided not to release the film, Taylor was livid. 
this was his baby. He'd been working on this for five, six, seven years. And now they were about to make it a financial flop. He was about to lose. And, you know, I'm pretty sure Hollywood pictures didn't, you know, there was a decision that they could make financially because they take a loss on it, a $30 million loss. That's okay because of what is going on in the world. Taylor could not afford to do that as a filmmaker, you know, to invest all of his hard-earned passion and labor and, and even money because he was one of the investors finally in Blood In, Blood Out. People don't know that. He was actually invested financially in it. So, you know, they knew that over time, because of the rise of box office at that time, that they could make their money back. But, you know, financially, they were going to have to take a hit. And critically because there was going to be no critical acclaim for the film there was going to be no major distribution or release and he was going to be perceived as a flop and so i think at that point taylor saw the impact on him as a businessman and as a filmmaker uh but there is the industry the industry was able to because of their control they were able to control the artistry and so i saw there that there was there was definitely a gap and a need for us as artists to be able to take control, more control of that. And so at that point is when I started paying more attention to the business and industry side of it as a filmmaker, not as an actor, but as a filmmaker, uh, because I saw that as an actor, you're always going for that golden ring and that only very few get to it. Mm-hmm. And that when they get to there, then they probably don't want to share it because once you give up the golden ring, there's usually only one or two kings of the hill. Mm-hmm. And so if you help someone else get up to that hill, then quite possibly they could knock you off. And this is the general feeling of business, you know, to be a, mm-hmm. an ultimate uber success in this industry mm-hmm. as an actor. And I just didn't see myself following that formula to be successful as an actor. I saw myself as long-term. I saw myself as, you know what? I may take a hit financially, but when I look back at my career, I'm going to leave a legacy from fame, from Jesse Velasquez on fame, which has an and base in Europe and abroad. Mm-hmm. I mean, we just did, we've, we've been doing these major reunion concerts and it's as if we were 20 years old. Uh, my daughter tells me, she goes, you love to go do these things because it's like you're a rock star, huh? <laughs> I said, yeah, I, go, I get to relive my youth. Uh-huh. But I also get to see the impact that I had as an actor sure. with mm-hmm. my character. So from, Car- from Jesse Velasquez to, you know, to Cruz, you know, which is now, well, it's 27 years old. It's almost 30 years old now, blood in, blood out. But Crucito and the Chicano artist, that has continued to live to, you know, to, to the work that I did in television, you know, to the work that I've done in film. Like I said, all those independent films, La Mission, um, a, you know, Life Lessons with uh, New York Stories with, uh, with uh, Martin Scorsese. Uh, uh, you know, uh, you like horror. Did you get to see Dead Awake? Dead Awake, Dead Awake is a little Sony. Uh, check it out. It's a little Sony release, but it was an independent mm-hmm. horror film that I did in San Antonio, uh, some friends of mine who were producers had, uh, uh, um, who's the guy who wrote the final destination franchise, um, Jeffrey Reddick. Uh, okay. Jeffrey Reddick wrote uh, final destination. Well, he had a little script, uh, about a sleep disorder and an entity that appears to you. 
and he got it, you know, some, some local producers produced a little horror flick and they got a stellar cast, you know, uh, uh, um, what was her name? Uh, yeah, we'll see Lori, uh, Lori Petty's in it. Uh, Lori Petty, mm-hmm. Jesse Billy Bradford. Blair. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, who's Ray. the lead actress? Uh, uh, J- uh Jocelyn Donahue. Jocelyn Donahue. Jocelyn. So she's a little screen queen. Yeah. Jocelyn Donahue. She's a screen queen. So, you know, it had a, a bit of an indie cast, but with me and Lori Petty, you know, it kind of took it outside of the, the, the indie range. And again, same thing as a uh, Phoenix, Oregon, we had a bit of a formula and a bit of a chemistry with the cast. Well, this project gets out and because of the cast and the filmmakers, we made a pretty good little independent horror film. It gets to the horror festivals and people love it. Sony winds up picking it up. And now you have this little Sony, uh, you have this release of this independent horror film that did really well for them dead awake. But that character that I played, uh, uh, who was a doctor, a sleep disorder doctor, who offers me those types of roles in major studio films? Nobody. There's nobody offering me those parts. So now all of a sudden I get this opportunity. So I put my all into it and I create a little, another memorable character in the horror genre world. You know, horror has been really good for me. Same thing with Fear the Walking Dead. You know, mm-hmm. holding out against all of these negative stereotypical characters in this zombie world, mm-hmm. I wound up being offered the part of Ephraim, the water bearer, in the third season of Fear the Walking Dead. He becomes one of the most compassionate characters in the zombie world and an instant success, you know, and mm-hmm. again, a character that I'm proud to say, even in a genre series, I'm proud to say, hey, watch that me and Reuben Blades. And we made American television history it was the first time a primetime television show was completely in Spanish. So we actually made American history, oh, you know, wow. but again, exemplifying my culture, being bilingual, being bicultural, and still wanting to show the best of who we are in American television and cinema. Mm-hmm. And by sticking to those guns, I may not be a millionaire. I may not have a million dollar distribution deal with one of the studios, but I've been able, but I've been able to look back at my legacy and say, I'm proud of what I've done. Now, if I can get as a filmmaker, if I can get on the front end of that, and that's what I'm doing now, I'm developing a lot of projects as a producer for mm-hmm. myself as an actor and or for my public. Uh, and I think that's where in the next phase of my career, that's where I'm actually going to be a little more financially successful. Uh, and a little more successful in the business end of it is by becoming a creator myself. Uh, not only that, but I'm going to be able to work on the projects I really want to work on, like Phoenix, Oregon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The um, about the the series because you've been in a lot of very good series. Um, what's the difference between doing a series and doing like a movie? Obviously, it's like if you're on multiple episodes, it's a longer story arc and. But uh, what are the differences just playing like a role in a series as opposed to a movie? Uh, time constraints. Mm-hmm. One thing I learned from uh, jumping into series television first was that it was all about the uh, schedule and all about making your day and all about the fact that it, it's, you know, you only have a certain amount of days to shoot out your episode. So it doesn't matter how elaborate, you know, one episode could be very simple with very few elements. The next el- the episode could be very elaborate uh, in terms of location or in terms of the elements. Um, 
And so you run into that at some point shooting television. Um, so you're always trying to way to, uh, trying to find a way to streamline your process. Um, but at the same time, also stay within the confines of the, uh, the scheduling. Um, and you still want to be able to play, right? You still want to be able to, uh, uh, you know, create. And I think, uh, the directors are the ones that are able to stay on schedule and yet still be able to allow actors to live and breathe within a set before they have to actually roll camera, you know, mm-hmm. um, on a film you have, and hopefully even in an independent film, you try to create that feeling that you are, uh, you, you have time to be able to let things percolate and marinate, you know? So as an actor, you have time to kind of develop this character. You can call the director and, you know, talk to him about it. You can get together and rehearse. Um, you know, I did a film called, uh, I like it like that, which, uh, was actually was celebrated as the first, feature film columbia pictures first feature film to be directed by a a woman of color darnell martin directed i like it like that stars lauren belez again she's the uh latina lieutenant in dexter lauren Mm -hmm. belez uh but that was lauren's first film and i had just done blood in blood out so here i jump onto this much smaller budgeted film uh i thought it was an independent but it was actually uh, you know, Columbia pictures, Mm -hmm. but you know, Darnell Martin is a real big, uh, uh, love your actors director. So she made sure that we got there. We rehearsed all of the scenes, uh, you know, we ad libbed, we, uh, you know, she wrote a lot of those, uh, developmental scenes that became ad libs into the actual script so that we would remember what it was that we uh, developed Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and in a television set, you don't get that. You get there, you, you know, you rehearse for camera, learn your lines, go back to, and usually you're doing this simultaneously with preparing uh, uh, makeup and wardrobe, and then you're ready to shoot. So if you don't show up onto that television set uh, prepared already, um, then you're a little already, you're a little behind. Whereas on a film set, you can show up, uh, talk a little bit about it, make some changes, rehearse a little, uh, and then, and then you get to shooting. Uh, Mm -hmm. so I think that's, that's the difference. And then the, you know, usually in a film, you're there for about 20 days to a month, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, and so you've got time to really percolate and marinate and fix things. Like you can do a scene and say, Oh, I didn't quite hit it there, but in the terms of the narrative, I'm going to get to a, a more critical scene uh, later on in the shooting schedule. And I can actually, you know, you know, I can actually link up what I did in the first work and I can really make it seem seamless, you know, mm-hmm. whereas on a television set and television set, you're balls out from the minute you get there. And sometimes you have to do the emotional stuff first before you're ready. So you have to be ready. You have to show up ready to go. You have to be able to go from zero to 60 immediately. Uh, And it's a challenge, but it's a skill. You know, it's a skill you can develop like everything else. Uh, You know, I hate auditioning. I came from the world of of theater and I was part of a theater company. So I didn't audition a lot, you know. So when I I got here and I had to audition more, I had to get around that process of I need a job, you know. 
and and go no 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 this is this for me is about showing them what I can do because if I go in there with the idea of I need to get this part I want this part I need I'm not going to get it you know uh, and so I had to I had to change my process and make it more artistic for myself even though that's a business move that's a job interview so uh, you know you always have to play with with both sides. And so once I learned the, the rhythm of a television set and I actually did it for three years on fame, I became quite good at it. You know, I'm quite skilled at shooting on a television set because I understand that you've got to come in uh, with a certain amount of uh, chutzpah already, you know? Yeah. When you mentioned your daughter said like, you like to go to these, uh, the, the reunions of fame because you feel like a rock star and relive your youth. How about w- when fame was on, when you were first on fame, like, how did you deal with the fame of being on fame? You know, young, good looking guy, you know, on, on a TV show. <laughs> oh my God. That film. I mean, it was already winning Emmy awards, right? Uh-huh. Um, Debbie Allen had uh, become a producer on it. And so Debbie was not only choreographing, but she was producing and she was uh, starting to direct a lot of the episodes. So when I came on, they'd already been on for four years. So they had a rhythm and they had a pedigree. I was in art school at the time, and that was one of the few shows that we would watch. We'd all get together at whatever guy had a television in his uh, dorm room, and we would watch Fame because it was about a school of performing arts, and that's what we were going to, a college of performing arts. So we vibed that, and I was a big fan of the Alan Parker movie, uh, and, and you know, a lot of the characters from the film were in the television series. Lee Carreri was one of my favorite characters and one of my favorite actors from the film. And so uh, we would watch. So the actual fact that we got to audition for this, and again, uh, Bill Blinn, who was one of the writers of it, um, and uh, Ken Ehrlich, another one of the producer writers, and Debbie Allen, they were trying to create new characters uh, to reinvigorate the series, a lot of the actors were leaving, a lot of the producers were leaving. And so they came up with this idea to have one of the first American Idol type of auditions where anybody would could audition and we're going to pick, uh, we're going to discover the next great star talent off the street. And so this excited everyone, especially in the regions of New York and California. The film was shot at MGM Studios, so LA was doing a big open call. And New York, where the school was supposed to be, was having a big open call. So about 3,000 auditioned in New York off the streets. About, uh, you know, 3,000 of us auditioned here in L.A. And I was in acting school in L.A., so I and a bunch of us who were triple threats decided to go down and audition. Uh, I would say that most of my school was triple threat. So a lot of them, you know, we had a dance school, we had an acting school, we had a music school. So everybody went and auditioned. Uh, at the same time, everyone who had an agent in the industry got a chance to audition and send in tape. So, you know, there was over, I would say, between 10,000 people that auditioned uh, to 20,000 that auditioned for a role. Well, they obviously went for a celebrity, Janet Jackson. Um, who was a, you know, uh, an obvious choice for me, Mia Peoples, who was already, uh, uh, had an agent and was in the industry and had done a few things, another brilliant triple threat actress. And the only person that they chose out of that open call was little old me, a little Chicano kid out of the South side, you know, studying acting Uh at Cal arts, you know, 
eating uh, uh, cans of refried beans and tortillas <laughs> that his grandmother would send him in a box in a care package from <laughs> South Texas. <laughs> this is this was my reality, you know. But I was living the dream because here I was in art school. Here I was doing what I wanted to do, you know. So uh, I didn't care. All of a sudden, there's this opportunity to be part of a major television production. So I went in, I auditioned, you know, and uh, I did my thing. At that time, I didn't have a tele- telephone. I didn't have anything like that. So I basically told them that I lived at CalArts and that they could reach me there. And they took a Polaroid of everybody because at that time, a lot of people didn't even have uh, 8x10. So they took a Polaroid of right. And I, and, and I left, right? And I, I took off. Mm-hmm. Three weeks later, everyone had been called back except me, uh, even my friends. And the word was that they'd found me looking for. Janet Jackson was hired. And that was it. So I said to myself, man, I thought I did well enough at least to come back and audition for a part because I got to sing and dance. They had a singing and dancing audition, but you didn't get to act. And called mm-hmm. people back to that. So in other words, you had to sing and dance and called back for character. So I didn't get called back. I said, well, I thought I did better than that. Oh, well. So I forgot about it. After about another week, someone came up to me and said, hey, your picture was on the news. Something about the fame. Now that they were joking with me, right? Uh-huh. Hot shots. And I said, oh, they're... They're digging it in me, right? They're putting one in me. And I, I had words with this guy and kind of looked at me, you know, and walked away. The next day, my roommate wakes me up and says, hey, uh, I couldn't stand it. I went across the hall to our suite mates. I have a telephone. I called MGM casting office and they are looking for you. And I said, what? And so I went over there and apparently they had lost my contact information. So all they had was my name and my picture. So oh. apparently for the last two weeks to my oblivion, you got to remember <laughs> this is way before, uh-huh. yeah, way before cable. Yeah, cell phones, before right. Cable. Uh-huh. They were flashing my Polaroid in LA County going, if you know this kid, tell him to call us. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I said, this is Jesse Borrego. And they said, bullshit, what were you wearing? <laughs> so apparently hundreds of people have been calling in saying, <laughs> right, Jesse Borrego. <laughs> so I said, I was wearing a, a, you know, a blue jean, a purple vest, no shirt open. They were like, we found him. We found him. And so I went in and uh, I auditioned uh, for Meg Lieberman, uh, who's a big casting director, uh, was a big casting director at that time. Now she's a big, uh, executive, uh, television executive. But at that time, Meg Lieberman, uh, and Irene Kagan were the casting directors for MGM and for fame. So they auditioned me. They loved me. They said, look, uh, you're going to audition for the producers now, but uh, get some sheet music together and do what you do. And I went in and the rest is history. Uh, but working on that series television for three years, I learned the rhythm of television. So it was training school. Another thing was that it wasn't shot as a sitcom with cameras and a live audience. It was shot on 35 millimeter film. So I also got to study film uh, because it was a film set. So I got to study 30, 35 millimeter film, even though I was working on a television set. So it was like film school for me. 
so again, as a student of the game, I just kept absorbing these things. And it's always served me in the next job that I've done. Like I tell you, once I, were, I was on the set with Martin Scorsese, it was a film set. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if you know the film New York Stories, but yeah. it was the uh, bestseller that had the three directors direct three shorts. Woody Allen directed one. Uh, Francis Ford Coppola directed the other. And Martin Scorsese. So to me, I was like, this is my first film. Oh, my God. But I'd already been trained in film for three years. So I knew how to act. I knew how to behave. I knew how to do what I had to do. Uh, and it helped out because Martin wound up loving my character so much and allowing me to ad-lib and elaborate on the character. Uh, so everything that I've learned in my industry, in my art, has served me to the next thing, you know, Phoenix, Oregon, same thing. The fact that, it, uh, I went through the experience with follow me home that never came out. Uh, that was before DVD. So even though we four walled that film, follow me home, the first film I did with Peter Brad and Benjamin Brad and Alfre Woodard, it had stars in it. It had a great story, but because of the climate of the time and the business, it didn't get distribution and it was before DVD. So once we weren't able to make our money in the four walling, it just got shelved and it, it hasn't seen the light of day since. So I've seen something that I've put in my blood, my passion, my guts, and I've seen the filmmakers do the same. I've seen it disappear. So I know that there's a disconnect that if you don't think of it as a business, you might not get your art out there. So when we did La Mission 15 years later, I was committed to helping them figure out that gap and we were able to do that. And so fast forward to Phoenix, Oregon, now we're doing it again. Mm -hmm. You know, instead of saying, instead of being like other films that we're going to release this, this uh, weekend, oh crap, now what are we going to do? We got to postpone, we got to delay, you know, once you get into the spring and the summer, you're competing against the big budget right. summer releases. You know, mm -hmm. if things go back to normal, you know, mm -hmm. so you're in trouble if you're not able to uh, come out in the theaters and do the kind of numbers that you think you can do. So for other titles that have this enormous studio backing, you know, they're they're going to they're going to have challenges us because we are independent, because we are so small. We're the flea on the elephant's back that can really create a big bite, you know. And so I think for us, that is everything that I've been learning uh, about what you can do. So even though I was here in South Texas, really trying to get this deal together with Santicos, and I was concentrating on the business part of it, as things were changing, I was able to weigh in as a consultant with the filmmakers and say, no, turn into the curb turn into the curve, the way things are going, this could benefit us. And so because of what I've seen and gone through, I was able to really help bolster their confidence in this move. And, uh, you know, and I think they're going to be talking about this in the future of, uh, of independent cinema, you know? Mm -hmm. do, do you think like going forward, this could be a way that independent films are released? You know, even if things go back to normal as far as theaters go? Well, I know from having worked in the independent world that there are a lot of films that never make it out. 
Uh-huh. Thank God for streaming, but the same thing happened. The minute everything went to streaming and you had Netflix, mm-hmm. if you decide you want to go straight to there, then you get a raw deal. It's like going mm-hmm. straight to studio, uh, straight to video. You know, back in the day when they wanted to release Blood In, Blood Out on VHS first, that was mm-hmm. death. It was considered death because it doesn't have the pedigree of a theatrical release. So even though by the late 90s and early 2000s, they already knew that the digital world was going to up, cause an upheaval in the film world because you weren't talking about film anymore. You know, the making of prints, billion-dollar industry, prints deteriorate 50% after their first showing because of the heat of the projector. So we're talking about a change in technology, you know? Uh, And this was already known by the late 90s, early 2000s, but the industry wasn't ready to give up the lucrative billion-dollar industry of making prints, right, of replacing Mm -hmm. prints. So they basically had the theaters on lockdown. Uh, You stick with us. We're not going to let you show our movie unless you order more prints. You see what I'm saying? So there was a dinosaur industry that was holding everything back. That and the fact that everything hadn't been standardized in the digital world yet. Well, fast forward a few years later, things started streaming, right? And YouTube Mm -hmm. was taking off and free content. And the fact that Netflix would you know, was going from DVD mailings to actual streaming. The streaming was getting good. So now the fear was creeping in. So, you know, studios and movie theaters were trying to figure out. And so movie theaters said, well, you know, we'll 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 start shooting things in 4K and Reds and all that and and Alexis. And theaters start converting. So theaters started converting to showing. But the relationship was the same. The relationship was still, we provide the content, you show it. You may have a state-of-the-art theater, but if you don't have a state-of-the-art movie, then it doesn't mean anything. So there was Mm -hmm. still that uneasy alliance, right? And, of course, indie theaters suffered because they didn't have the money to convert to digital, right? Mm -hmm. You also have the consolidation of the independent labels into major labels. This happened in the late 90s, right? Mm -hmm. So you really didn't have any independent production companies. You had a lot of independent filmmakers because they thought that they could get their stuff right to Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. So you have this no man's land. So if you were able to cross that no man's land with a finished film and say you went to Amazon or Hulu or iTunes and you said, I want to show my film, you were going to get a raw deal. You weren't going to get a million dollar Hollywood studio distribution deal. You see what Mm -hmm. I'm saying? Yeah. So you still kind of had to figure out how can I get myself a little theatrical so that people perceive this to be a film. So then I can go to the negotiating table with Netflix with a little bit more on my side. Mm -hmm. So that's a very difficult thing to do, you know? So, Uh, You know, I think that probably La Mission has a great deal, but if you look at any of the streaming platforms, it's not on there. You know, it's not on Netflix. 
It's not on Amazon. But whenever they do stream, whenever they do show the film, the dollar goes directly to the filmmakers. So they've been able to successfully keep the dollar in their corner, but they, they're still very clogged in terms of the streaming of it. They still depend a lot on DVD sales, where physical media is already dead, you know? Mm. So even as independent filmmakers, you have to figure out how to close the loop without uh, lowering your perceived value, uh, you know? Uh, as an intellectual property. And that's what a film is, you know? Anything you make is an intellectual property. So you still have to figure out a way to monetize that, especially film uh, projects, because they're very, uh, they're very costly, you know? Uh, you're talking about a quarter of a million for a good independent film. Now, can you make good films for less than that? Absolutely. But you're still looking at thousands of dollars Mm-hmm. you know, hours of people's time. Uh, so it, it it costs somewhere. You know, I remember we used to laugh when, you know, they promoted uh, Robert Rodriguez's El Mariachi with, oh, he only spent $9,000 and $10,000. Yeah, and it was like, yeah, but you probably spent a few hundred thousand dollars remastering it when you released it for theatrical. You right. probably spent another couple of hundred thousand dollars for the marketing of this. And I'm pretty sure there was a few thousand dollars of in-house contribution from Robert's family and friends. <laughs> right, right. I said, so do the math, man. There's no way, there's no way. And so you understand that, that it's a very costly art form uh, with the potential to have, you know, great returns. But you have to think about that in terms of a business. Uh, my brother, James Borrego, he's a producer, uh, at the university of Texas, San Antonio, uh, um, uh, university, but he's also the film teacher at the local community college, San Antonio community college. But he was in the, he was in the industry as well as an actor and as a, as an AD. And so he knows, uh, as a producer, he knows what it takes. Uh, and so that's one of the things that he teaches in his acting classes. I mean, in his, uh, film production classes, not just, uh, he starts with screenwriting, then he gets into production and they do labs, but within all of that is the reality and the reality check about it being an industry and about it being a business and about thinking of it in those terms in order to survive and have a career and make a living, you know, make a living. Um, and then hopefully within that you can do and make the films and tell the stories you want to, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, I think that, uh, the future is going to be that independent films, hopefully with this are going to be able to go directly to their core audience. Mm-hmm. So I think that there is going to be now mechanisms and distribution companies that are going to focus specifically on that because right now distribution companies are caught between trying to sell to the big studios Mm -hmm. or trying to sell to the streaming platforms, which is very Mm -hmm. difficult because you still have to create the perceived value of your film, you know, Mm-hmm. And that's very difficult for, dis- for for smaller distribution companies because they they love these little independent films. These are the films that have no 
representation. So these are the ones that they're able to buy. These are the ones that they want to get out there. Uh, and again, once they go to these streaming platforms, they have no negotiating chips because they've had no theatrical. They have no major studios backing them. They have no P&A money. You know, mm. publicity and advertising money is a big investment that studios make to sell you these Marvel films. You know, mm. they put millions, tens of millions, hundreds of millions into the actual marketing and promotion of these projects in order to make billions. Mm. You don't have that with a little independent film. You know, they've, they've shot their wad the minute that they finished production, you know, from now on, they're going to be running on fumes until they make that deal. So if the only deal they have is to go straight to Netflix, when they get to that negotiating table, they're in trouble, you know? So usually if you get on one of these streaming platforms, you're not going to get a lot of play. You're going to be stuck in the queue somewhere in the back end in a genre uh, classification. And you are going to have to do your own promotion to tell people, hey, I'm on iTunes, I'm streaming on Netflix, I'm streaming on Amazon, you know. And again, I tell you, these are horribly raw deals to stream on Amazon, stream on, you know, they're not great deals. So I think that what we're doing, keeping the ball in our court all the way through to distribution I think it's going to be the way to go. They're going to be talking about this for years to come and go. It was a little indie film that pivoted right during the heart of this pandemic. And like Winston Churchill says, when disaster happens, when calamity happens, some people see disaster, some, some people see opportunity. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think we were able to see opportunity because of the love we have for for this project and for this story. And I think it's going to be, bring people a lot of entertainment in this very uncertain time. I agree. I really uh, enjoyed it. And it was interesting. I just interviewed um, someone the other day who has a series they're trying to, to sell to, um, to streaming platforms. And he wouldn't say the actual platform, but he says one of the major ones. So I assume that, but I don't know what was the major one, but he said that uh, they actually offered him no money at all. Uh, but they promised that like, that it would, uh, if it did well, if it got the numbers, that the, if they renewed it for the next season, then you could possibly see money and talk about the, like, the notoriety of being on whatever streaming site this is. But what does that even mean, the wow. notoriety, if, if you're offered exactly. no money you know, whatsoever? Exactly. You see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. So, but how do you know that unless you've studied the business, unless you know the industry? When I was in L.A., I would always read the L.A. Times, but I would read two sections, the entertainment section and the business section, because you saw right there in that town the connection between what was happening in the financial business world and what was happening in the entertainment industry. So you saw immediately the connection between these things. And I could always see that there was, you know, there was a, there was a business gap between the artistry of how, why we get into this as filmmakers uh, and as storytellers and the distribution, the sharing, I'm going to call it the sharing of these stories and these projects with our core audience. And then how do you monetize that so that you can survive? You know, back in the 80s and 90s, the idea was that you made independent films because you knew you were never going to make money. 
but you were going to make these auteur films that were going to live forever, right? And we would talk about all these films that we'd seen that never had commercial success, but that always had this critical success, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like idiots, you know? We thought that that was it. We were going to be a tour. But then, you know, the reality of having to make a living, having mm -hmm. to sustain yourself, even as an independent filmmaker, even in the theater, how do you do that? And so, you know, the reality of it is, is that you have to think as an entrepreneur. You have to think as an entrepreneur in order to continue to be an artist, even on a tour. And so I think for, for me, that was easy because I was already an artist, but I'm also, uh, I'm also a student. And so I, you know, I got into that and I started studying it and I started studying business and small business. And then how was that going to work for me? My dream is still to create and build a production studio here in San Antonio so that I can connect a lot of these youth groups, youth media groups that I'm training as workforce, but I'm not going to train them to starve as independent filmmakers. Right, right. I'm going to give them a job in my studio as the next greatest Robert Rodriguez or Jesse Borrego. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So if I can connect that loop in the latter half of my career, then I really will retire happy. And at the same time, you know, I can be running a studio where I'm putting out five to 10 great Latino films, American films, uh, directly to my core audience, you know? Mm -hmm. And now I don't have to worry if Hollywood loves me or not, you know? Mm -hmm. So uh, where can people follow uh, Phoenix Oregon, you know, online to see, you know, uh, where they can check it out and then news about it? Well, I know we have a Facebook, so we're using the Facebook a lot. Uh, so go to mm -hmm. Phoenix, Oregon movie on the Facebook, but also go to Phoenix, Oregon movie.com. Three mm -hmm. words together. Phoenix, Oregon movie.com. And I think that's where you can see the, uh, uh, the view at home options, how it works. Yeah. Uh, and other things we're doing. I know we were doing, a uh, a 300 club, you know, 300 is a perfect score in bowling. Uh, and you okay. know, bowling's a big team in, in this film. Yeah. So the first, the first 300 that buy their tickets, uh, are going to get not only, they're not only going to be able to view it at home, but they're going to be able to, uh, download it, uh, for ownership once it comes out. Uh, and we might uh, be doing that beyond the 300. I think maybe people that stream it this weekend might be able to just own it rather than just, uh, stream one time or view one time, mm -hmm. uh, which was the first option. I think people that go and, uh, and check it out are going to be able to own the movie. So you'll not only be able to put, uh, buy a movie ticket and watch it at its premiere, but you'll own it. Uh, so it's two for one. This is a great opportunity. Uh, spread the word Phoenix, Oregon movie.com. Mm -hmm. I think yeah, I'll put the, the link right on the website. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. Yes, I just, but, also, it, yeah. so, but you can hashtag that and we'll lead you there. The Facebook is going to lead you there. Um, and, uh, and let me know what you think. And that's another great thing about it. Usually you put a film out and you don't get to have a lot of feedback right. until you see the, uh, until you see the ticket sales dwindle, right? Then right away theaters know, eh, it's not really scanning with our audience. We're going to pull it because we've got the next big Marvel movie, you know, coming in right here. And that's another thing because as an independent, even though you get a commitment from a theater chain for a few screens, Mm -hmm. The minute the screens start to drop off, it's very competitive for space. So mm -hmm. if you're able to find 
some sort of uh, niche in there. And thank you to Santico's. Thank you to the Guild. Thank you to Lamley's. Thank you to all of those theater chains that gave uh, uh, Phoenix, Oregon a chance. But the minute that the numbers drop, time's gone on, the next big hit's coming out, you're squeezed out. So if you don't do well in the first week, and then another thing is the definition of weeks is different in the theatrical world. In theaters, in venues, weeks run Monday through Thursday or the weekend. The weekend is considered a run. Uh So you either have four days out of the week to get your little indie film out there, and then right before you're ready for the weekend, you get yanked. Mm-hmm. Or you get the weekend where you open on Friday and you better make something happen by Sunday, which is impossible. Mm-hmm. So unless you have a lot of publicity and advertising, then, you know, so within a week or two, you better show numbers or else. And that's just the business end of it. That's got nothing to do with whether the theater likes the film or not. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? It's, it's just, it's just a, a matter of numbers, especially when you're talking about you got to fill, you got to have enough screens for these big Marvel films because that's where they make money. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so you're, <clears throat> and so you're constantly fighting not only to get into the theater, but then to stay there enough to make it worth your while. Because again, mm-hmm. if you, if you're in the theater for three days and nobody shows up, then what's the point? You know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, just to say you yeah, were in the you're theater. Back to yeah. yeah, you're back to square one. And so the fact that we're going to be able to continue to show this film, we're not going to have to be worried about squeeze that being squeezed out next week, the week after that. We can continue. Now we're, we're I mean, we're, we're opening up a can of worms here, man. We're letting the cat out of the bag. It's going to run free. And we're going to be able to really, hopefully, hopefully, um, make this film a, a financial success, which is a big thing for an independent film because now we don't necessarily have to worry about making a raw deal with, you know, one of these streaming platforms. We don't have to worry about the timing of it. You know, uh, everything is about timing. So before they'd wait six months before a home box office release. Now, because everything's streaming, you know, they're turning it around in three weeks after a film opens. Mm-hmm. It's already streamed, you know. So a lot of people aren't going to see it in the movie theater because they're like, "Well, I'm just going to wait till it comes, you know, till it comes to my Netflix or till it comes to my streaming platform," mm-hmm. uh, you know. And so timing is very critical. Well, now we don't have to worry about timing. We don't have to worry about the competitiveness of the venue space. We've taken ourselves out of all the challenges that most indie films have to go through. And I just see it as a win-win for everybody, especially because everybody's got to stay home right now. Everybody's socially distancing. Mm -hmm. So they're looking for ways to be entertained and to have fun. You know what I mean? To share Mm -hmm. things with each other. This film, you know, you can tell everybody it's a, it's a family film. It's a share it with everybody. You know, it has something in it for everybody from food to bowling, to sports, to great, performances to uh yeah, you know a a happy mm-hmm. yeah definitely and uh, that, i mean that's why i usually do a sh- uh the podcast once a week but i'm doing some more because uh one thing gives me something to do and also f- uh 
think it gives people something to listen to uh, when there's nothing much to do in the world at the moment. Yeah, exactly. We're big in podcasts right now. But again, the whole technology is kind of taking over the entertainment industry. The technology is leading the way while the entertainment industry is scrambling to move out of their dinosaur way. But that's because, and you have to understand that it's because that side of it is controllable and therefore lucrative to them, lucrative Mm -hmm. to these companies. Now the cat's out of the bag and the artist is getting the power back. And I, you know, I'm very excited because I'm an artist. So even though I'm, I'm schooled and I'm a student now of the business industry side of it, I'm not an insider. I'm still an outsider as an artist, as a creator, uh, as a creative. And, uh, you know, the creatives have always had to uh, share the power with uh, the industry and the business, you know. And yes, that's as it should be, you know. Uh, Even in filmmaking, independent filmmaking, you have investors, uh, you know, who put in their hard-earned money and their expertise as businesses. So they have to be able to make their money back. They have to make their investment back. And so even in the independent world, we have a lot of uh, formulas for projecting how to make investors' monies back. You know, whether they're investment groups, whether they're pension funds that are investing in films, whether they're uh, financial institutions and guarantee companies, which is what, how it used to be in the 90s, uh, uh, or whether it's a plan to get to streaming, you know, and how we're going to monetize that. So, uh, you know, a lot of development projects that I'm working on now not only have the development of the film production itself into a screenplay and then into an actual production schedule, but within it are the plans. How are we going to distribute this? How are we going to monetize it enough to make our investors money back? Because you, you, that's the whole goal in the business and in the industry. If it's a success, then that means that a lot of people saw it. Mm-hmm. So it's always a win-win when a film gets out there. Uh, and again, it used to be that you have, you used to have to sell it to a studio, right? And mm-hmm. Hey, that's a beautiful thing. If Phoenix, Oregon get bought by a major studio, you know, to be one of their titles, then we don't have a problem with that. We don't have a problem with having a Lionsgate brand on it with having a, you know, uh, uh, you know, a Disney brand on it. No problem with that at all especially when you consider the shelf life of a film of a project you know ad nauseum right now mgm is taking all the fame episodes off of youtube you know mgm hasn't worried about fame for 35 years (laughs) Uh why is it valuable to them now because people are absorbing it because of the recent rise of the idea of fame and the, the work that we did, all that artistry is coming across. Uh, people still love us as actors and artists. And so they're appreciating that work that we did 35 years ago and they're absorbing the hell out of it for free. And so it's, it's kind of scaring these guys and going, wait a minute, we're giving it away for free when we can do something with this. Yeah. So the bottom line is always going to be to figure out how to balance that. Uh, but I think right now it's a wonderful time for artists and creators because uh, we're the ones that usually get left on the back burner whenever mm-hmm. the bottom line is the most 
important thing, you know, in a decision, uh, in what should be an artistic decision. Uh, and so I think right now, I mean, look at this whole thing with the uh, closing of the theaters. You know, man, that was a tough decision for people to make. Yeah. To end production. Right now, film production, television production is at a standstill. Mm-hmm. So all across the board, our industry has been impacted. So, But I'm pretty sure there was a tough decision to make because most of their decisions are based on the bottom line. Mm-hmm. You know, Not consideration. And so I think right now the industry is getting a wake wake up call that we really need to think of ourselves as human beings and as a society, you know, and that, and not as haves and have nots, not as upper level and lower level. And I think there's been a lot of that left over in the hierarchy of the industry. You know, we're the money makers, we're the bean counters, we're the guys who uh, make these deals in these back offices. And so therefore our decisions are more relevant than the decisions of the creators and the creatives, you know. Um, and I think there has to be a balance struck, you know. Um, when I announce you're coming on, I notice there's people asking questions. Do you mind if I ask a few of them? If you have time. Sure, absolutely. All right, cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nikhil wants to know, uh, any memories on the set of Con Air with Nicolas Cage and John Malkovich? Are you kidding me? <laughs> I, I had already worked with Danny, I had already worked with Danny Trejo on Blood In, Blood Out. Uh, same thing with uh, uh, Ving Rhames. You know, Ving Rhames was in uh, Blood In, Blood, uh, uh, Blood, Blood Out. So I'd worked with Ving Rhames before. So it was like a family get-together, man. You know, all of these incredible actors uh, getting to meet and work with one of my idols, you know, um, a very rarely fanboy, but when I was hanging out with John Malkovich, <laughs> was the best i mean Mm -hmm. not only as a theater actor you know he was already a legend but then as a film actor you know he's an actor's actor so to be able to be next to him working with him uh was a dream come true and he is such a gracious human being you know he had his kids on the set like i had my daughter on the set and he was just so such a father figure you know in his uh his evil cyrus mode he was such a little Mm -hmm gentle father figure to my daughter. And I just remember that. Uh, uh, and not only that, but, you know, just the love that all of the actors had for each other on the set, on the production. Uh, you know, it was a big production. We wound up spending weeks and weeks out in Wendover, Utah, doing nothing, you know, on an abandoned airfield in the middle of the desert of the white sands. And, you know, we spent a lot of time together. And, you know, you have to like each other in order to be able to spend that much time together. And she really got close to a lot of the guys, um, you know, Danny Trejo, like I said, his family, uh, you know, he was an uncle to it's like a, like a godfather uncle to my little girl. And, and so I think a lot of, uh, 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 a lot of memories there are less about the production and more about the people that I hung out with, you know, uh, found out that John is a big basketball fan and he used to play basketball. Oh, really? Uh, he went to school with Doug Powell. Yeah. And so, uh, and so at one point, you know, that's one of the things that I do in order to stay healthy is I find the local basketball court and I go hang out. So after oh, a while, I get to know, I get to know all the fellas because they recognize me. And so we had this large uh, immigrant community uh, of Latinos who I was playing with every day. And like I said, we were out there for months. So they got to know me. Hey, Brusito, la, 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 la. 
you know. So I told John, I said, hey, I've been working out. You want to go shoot around with me a little? And he, you know, he's been there a few weeks. He goes, yeah, you know what? I will get out and shoot a little. And he's a, he's a tall, he's a tall man. He's about six foot something. And he's got a great jump shot. So I take them out there and, you know, these, these guys, you know, they don't, they don't really know him specifically, you know, John Malkovich, but they just embraced him and he had a, and you know, he never, he was always polite and competitive and fun with these, uh, you know, young Latino kids and, you know, we had a blast and we played together. That was one of my best memories. I go, man, I got to play basketball with John Malkovich. <laughs> yeah. I, I brought him to my people's basketball court and they just had a blast. And, you know, little things like that that I remember from from the production, you know. Um, and, I, and also I, Nicolas Cage was really, really cool. He had a big, he had a big trailer where, you know, because it was all about the bodies, right? It was all about right. these guys that had been in prison. So they all had these incredible muscles. So everybody wanted to work out and we were out in the middle of nowhere. So there was nowhere to really work out. Well, Nick, in order to stay in shape, had a big uh, trailer pulled out there that had a big full gym in there. Well, once he realized that a lot of the fellas didn't have anywhere to work out, he mm-hmm. graciously, because uh, that trailer was only for him. Of course, he's the big star of the film. Mm-hmm. No, he went out there and he said, fellas, Use it, use it anytime you want. So he made it available to the entire cast. Uh, and these guys were hardcore uh, workout guys. You know, if you watch the film, all those muscles don't come for free. They got to work on it every day. Mm-hmm. So it was very gracious of him as the star of this film to offer up his trailer. And so every day you'd see the guys go over there and just hit it, hitting the weights. And, you know, it was, it, was, it was a very cool scene, man. It was a very cool scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's a really fun movie. And uh, Danny Trejo is a great guy. And one of my favorite interviews of doing the the any of my podcasts was with Danny Trejo. Uh, did a live Q and A with him at a convention, and uh, kind of like what you were talking about. He, you know, for, to start his career, he played a lot of. Uh, he said like inmate number one, and you know, uh, gangster number two, and all that kind of stuff. And it was really later in his uh, in his career where he got the roles that people re- really remember him for. And it's it's really uh, inspiring story to you know stick with uh, stick with what you're doing. Always and memorable. You get success yep. later on, you know. Always memorable. He's one of the guys that I've worked with a lot. Blood in, blood out. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mi vida loca, the Allison Anders uh, girl gang film. Uh, Con Air. I just did a little local movie with him called Margarita Man, uh, where he plays the dean of the college that my son is going to. <laughs> so it's 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 a fabulous to see him in a comedic role. Uh, but I've worked with Danny a lot, man. He's really big into his community, uh, into uh, you know talking about his experience. Uh, but I'm 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 so proud of the success that he's had. Uh, and then he's been able to, again, brand himself into this wonderful, uh, um, uh, you know, franchise that he's got. Trejo's Tacos, mm. Trejo's yeah. and Coffee Shop. <laughs> yeah. You know, I went to Trejo's Tacos. Uh, I went to Trejo's Tacos when I was in L.A. filming my uh, my first feature right, in December. Excellent. <laughs> you should try the, the donuts now. He's got a donut coffee shop now. Yeah, and he's opened up, and he started a uh, a uh, a record label. So you know he's he's really doing it, man. And you know that's a, that's a smart guy. You know, very mm-hmm. talented but very smart. 
And he's been able to take his talent and his personality and parlay it into very successful businesses. Uh, and that just speaks to the uh, acumen of his mind, man, you know, of, of, of who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, but it's always wonderful to see him because it's, it's like, you know, it's, it's like family when I get together with him, John Cusack, same thing. I knew John because I'd worked with, uh, with Joan, his uh, sister in mm-hmm. a couple of Joanne Acolytus productions. Uh, me and Don Cheadle were her brothers in a Shakespearean play Cymbeline that we did at the New York Shakespeare Festival, uh, at the public theater in New York years earlier. But, you know, so uh, we knew we knew Joan from having worked with her and I'd gotten to meet John, who was already a, a movie star. Uh, and so John knew of my work. And so when we got together on the set of uh, Con Air, again, it was like seeing a cousin. Hey, John, what's up? La, la, la. Yeah. So that's the beauty of having been in the industry as long as I have is a lot of times you finally get to work with people that you've known for years. Yeah. Uh, uh, and, and that was one of the cool things about Con Air is I would worked with a lot of these guys. Uh, before yeah. and then you get to work with people whose work you really respect you know Renelli Santiago who was in uh, Dangerous Minds um, he was uh, he was one of the characters on the set so you know we were fans of each other's work so then years later we got to work together on Touched by an Angel so again when you see each other it's like hey where you been what are you doing let's catch up <laughs> yeah uh, and Con Air was kind of like that mm-hmm. yeah and uh the the uh, friends I was staying with uh, when I was in LA, they're vegan. So I tried my first vegan taco ever at uh, at Danny Trejo's, which Boom. surprisingly was was very good. Uh, jackfruit taco. Oh. I, I I probably would have thought it was pulled pork if I didn't know it was jackfruit. I admit it's very good. Yep. See, yeah, Robert. Lucky for me, I've been I've been vegan since the eighties. Oh, okay. And so it's 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 been it's been good that a lot of this. Uh, a lot of the the cuisine has uh, has kind of yeah, improved it's, for uh, it's readily available, right? Yeah, because it used to be. I think it would be probably around where I live. If I was just any totally vegan, if I went out to eat, it probably would just be like all I could order is a salad or like a side dish. But uh, in in the cities, you can. I ate mostly vegan when I was out there, and everything was delicious. Exactly. Yeah. You said I've Robert had a question. Uh, yeah, Robert wants to know. How did the role of 24 come about? And did you enjoy playing Gail Ortega? Uh, and did you enjoy the twist of your character actually working undercover? The best thing about, again, staying true to my, uh, to my ethics is whenever I, is opportunities like that. So, you know, usually I have to, like I said, I, I get auditions for the bad guy and, you know, in, in series, in series television and episodics, they're usually the the most heinous type of characters, right? You know, mass murder. Yeah. You know, uh, narco captains and all this. <clears throat> so this is one of these auditions where I read it and I realized they wanted a guy with a very thick accent who was mean. And I said, man, I'm not going to be able to. There's no way, you know. I said, you know what? I'm going to go into this audition because I like this casting director and. I am going to just show him what a good actor I am, you know? And so I went in there and I basically played the scene in a way that was very unexpected for them. Right. And Mm -hmm. I think they kind of went, Whoa, 
brilliant performance, but not right for what we want for this character, right? But what it did put in their mind was that I could play this other complicated character. So again, by holding true to my, who I am, I was actually able to get a much better, more complex character in Gael, who winds up being the hero of the, of the, uh, of the whole series. If you remember at the end, I'm the mm. one who winds up going in there and detonating the bomb. Yeah. Another thing about the, uh, like, I, like, like he said about the twist was that I knew going in that I wasn't the main bad guy. So at that time, it was 2003, I think. They were already, uh, already getting very, very concerned about intellectual properties uh, kind of uh, getting outside before they had been filmed. So I guess people had shared some Star Wars stuff and some scripts online, and people were very scared about that. So it was very secretive in terms of giving the actors scripts. So we'd get a script, but we didn't know what was gonna happen in the next episode. Well, that's okay if you're working on a regular series, but 24, basically everything happens in a 24-hour period. So the next script is in an hour. You know what I mean? So I got to know what's going to happen five hours from now so that I can make my character realistic in the hour that I'm portraying right now. You see how difficult that is? And so for me as an actor, I was like, okay, I realize that you're being very careful with the scripts and you don't want to let us know and nobody can read the next script and la, 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 la. I go, but how do I know how I'm going to play this one moment in this scene if I don't know in the next hour what I'm doing or what's going to happen? Right. You see what I mean? So that was Uh the difficulty in the 24 type of script where every episode is an actual hour in the occurrence of the story. You know, you, that, that, that never happens. But that was the whole catch of 24, is that every episode is one hour in this actual thing. So you're playing it in yeah. real time, uh, even though you're filming that one hour over the course of a week. So <laughs> it, was, it, was, it was very, yeah, it was very difficult. So you had to kind of intuit where your character was going. So I knew that I wasn't a bad, bad guy, and I knew that I was undercover, mm-hmm. but I didn't know exactly how it was going to pan out. So I had to keep myself very open uh, as an artist in order to be able to absorb. And then, of course, you would figure out little cues, like you know, some of the hair and makeup people had to read the script coming up because they had to do their thing. And so you were mm-hmm. able to... Uh, read their script and go, Oh, this is what's going to happen. Okay. <laughs> and then you were able to build on that. But that was probably the, the, the most challenging thing about playing the Gael characters that I didn't know uh, week to week where the character was going hour to hour. Yeah. And so I had to kind of stay. Yeah. So I had to kind of stay loosey goosey and roll mm-hmm. with the punches. Uh, like I didn't know that I was, uh, you know, one of the whole things about series television especially when you're talking about the zombie genre, is if you survive the season, then quite possibly you have work next year. Right, <laughs> right. right. You know you're gonna, yeah, you know you're going to come back. Uh-huh. Uh, but, but there's a high mortality rate in those genre pictures. You know, 24, mm-hmm. same thing, high mortality rate. So when I survived the initial storyline, I thought to myself, okay, the terrorist threat is out there. 
I'm stuck here in the office. I'm not running around with Jack Bauer. Oh my God, I may survive and I'm going to get a little contract for <laughs> next year. Well, next thing you know, I get the script that says that uh, I'm headed out towards that point, <laughs> towards ground zero. And at that point, I knew, oh, <laughs> I don't think I'm going to survive this season. So yeah. you need, you see what I mean? Little things uh-huh. like that, little clues where you know, oh, damn it, I'm <laughs> headed to ground zero <laughs> with the lead actor. They're not going to kill the lead actor. So right. It's got to be me. So at that out. point, I knew. <laughs> Uh-huh. Yeah, so at that point I know, oh yeah. man. But it's still fun. It's still fun to take that ride, you know. Yeah. Oddly enough, Anthony was asking about how you found out about your being killed off in twenty four, so we just covered that. <laughs> oh, they I, I didn't even know it at the end they had me film it two ways because they oh, really? didn't know yeah, they knew that I was gonna get a disease, but they didn't know if he makes it at the end or if not. Uh and so there at the end, I, it was still up in the air. And I'd, I'd already filmed the scene where I say goodbye to her. Mm-hmm. Um, but she walks away and I'm still alive. She leaves me there. Um, and so I didn't know. And then a few days later, they said, okay, we're going to shoot the scene where we put the sheet over your head. And they went, oh, there it is, <laughs> right there. Uh-huh. Uh, so Raider, kind of like mm-hmm. Uh, Dre Raider Dre wants to know. Uh, stick with twenty four here. Is Kiefer Sutherland as intense in person as he is as Jack Bauer on screen? Oh, he's a he's a sweetheart, man. He is one of the most giving professional actors I've ever worked with. For being so brilliant and for having the you know pedigree that he's got, the history, and also you know being who he is, you would think that you know there there'd be some sort of hierarchy in terms of who he is and all the other actors but he's an actor's actor he's a real guy um i think he gets that from his father but he was such a giving actor such a wonderful man and always the first one on the set you know i i hate to say it but you know i'm time challenged most actors usually are you know Mm -hmm. we're usually showing up there's a lot of us that show up in that artistic way where we're, you know, last minute showing up, you know, maybe a little late, who knows. And in production, that's so critical. Uh, and then you get to a certain level where you can indulge in that, you know, where I've spent many hours waiting on a lead actor. You know, when I was working on uh, uh, Miami Vice, you know, we wouldn't shoot until he showed up, you know. And sometimes that wasn't until after lunch. So in the old school way of thinking, that's like uh, the minute we start production day, everybody should be ready to go. But, you know, personalities and stars run sets. So it's accepted that, a, a, uh, you know, you only start really working when the lead performer is ready. And if they're the producers, they're wearing different hats, they're the big uh, star getting paid the big money. You don't work until they're ready, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but Kiefer was the opposite. He was the first one on the set. He was early. He was well-prepared. And so it was just a delight to work with him on that set, you know? And he was the inspiration. Because uh, even though the producers and the writers were the main creators of it, 
he was the guy who was the leader on that set. You know, you just saw him leading by example. And so that was the best thing about working with Kiefer. Mm-hmm. You know, and then on top of that, just seeing his work, knowing that every take was golden. Yeah. You know, that man doesn't have a bad note in his performance. You know, I'm surprised that he hasn't done more, you know, lead roles mm-hmm. than he's done. You know, he, yeah. to me, he's, he's one of our best. Mm-hmm. I remember when 24 was big, he was one of the first like kind of Hollywood actors to go do television. And he mentioned that it was because there was like so many, there was better television scripts at the time than there were movie scripts. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'll ask one more here. Cause a lot of them, a lot of people are just telling you that they, that they love you, which is, which is obviously very nice to hear. Oh, but... Thank you guys. <laughs> I love you too. Remember that. Remember that when you watch my films, that a lot of that is, is me giving that love back to you. So uh, I appreciate that you appreciate that. Thank you, guys. I'm going to keep trying to do that as a filmmaker myself. Thanks. So uh, one more here is Nick wants to know, uh, can you talk about your experience on Married with Children? So uh, you remember I told you I was on that TV show, Fame. Well, it was a school of performing arts. So we got to sing and dance, constantly sing and dance. Christina Applegate, as a young triple threat herself, she was a fan of the show. So we had met a couple of times and she had just, they had just started the Fox Net- Network. And at that time we used to laugh and go, ha ha, Fox Network, that'll never fly, right? And, uh, you know, Married with Children was one of their first shows. Uh, and, and again, it was a little under the radar because they were a fledgling, uh, they were a fledgling uh, television network. So, you know, we'd met at a couple of events and, uh, you know, I knew her mom uh, through some acting students that I had. And, you know, I met Christina and she was like, hey, you know, I'm a big fan of the show. I'm on this show called Married with Children. And I said, oh, great, great thing. And uh, we kept in touch, you know, uh, as a young artist, I always try and give people support in their careers, you know, never realizing, you know, that she was going to become the, the megastar that she is. So a couple of years later, she calls me and she goes, hey, it's Christine. And I'm like, hey, congratulations. The show is huge. You know, it had really blown up. And she said to me, yes, uh, I have to dance with someone on the show. Would you dance with me? When I thought about it, I, I realized I wanted to dance with him. And I said, of course. I said, what's the character? She goes, well, it's a janitor. And I went, Arr! I said, hold on there, baby. I'm trying to play positive characters in, in television and film. I, go, I don't know if I can play a janitor. She goes, no, 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 no. He's a hot janitor and I've got the hots for him and we do a sexy dance together. And at that point I went, uh, I think I could do that. I could do that. She goes, no, I know you're a serious actor, but if you do this with me, um, uh, you know, I'll be very happy. And I said, well, you know what? I'm doing a lot of choreography right now since I've uh, been out of fame, choreographing a lot mm-hmm. for music videos, stuff like that. I go, do you have a choreographer? She said, no. I said, let me choreograph it. I'll do it. And so the rest is history. You know, the the best part of uh, shooting sitcoms is you rehearse all week and then you shoot on the week weekends. You know, you shoot on Thursday, Friday with mm-hmm. an audience. So we just got to, I got to dance, basically I got to dance with Christina all week. And since I was choreographing it, you know, it was creative for me as well. And she's a wonderful dancer. So we just had a blast. Um, And then we got to uh, perform it in front of a live audience. So uh, a few times, 
because you you know you have to do a couple of takes even though mm-hmm. it's live audience so uh and that was the best part of it and me and christina stayed such good friends throughout the years years later when she was uh uh dancing with that group what was the name of that uh that famous dancing music group the something girls oh mm. uh, i remember but she wound up dancing with them for a while oh really um, i didn't know that Mm-hmm. But we stayed friends throughout the years, and and she's still doing brilliant work. You know, the work that yeah. she's doing in comedic films and in television is great. Mm-hmm. Very cool. Well, but I'll always Jesse, remember I, our time. Da- I'll always remember yeah. our week dancing together. Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, I thank everyone who has sent any questions and also commented that uh, that they love Jesse. It's very nice of them. Yeah! Yay! <laughs> and, and I want uh, Jesse, them all to check out Phoenix, yeah, Oregon this exactly. weekend. Mm-hmm. Give us some numbers and tell me what you Phoenix, think. You know, we'll come back. Exactly. PhoenixOregonMovie.com. Sorry, I I think there was a little bit of a half a second delay. I started talking over you. I apologize, but PhoenixOregonMovie.com. That's where you can find out how you can watch a movie. And I really enjoyed talking with you. You too. And, uh, you know, we're also going to be trying to, because we had to cancel a lot of in-house Q and A's. We're also going to be trying to figure out some virtual Q and A's. So keep an eye out for that. I have a nonprofit here in town that kind of formalizes all the stuff I do with these production groups, these young production groups. It's called Cine Studio San Antonio. Cine Studio SATX.org is the site. But if you look up Cine Studio San Antonio, it'll lead you to us. And, you know, you can give to us as a nonprofit, but also be looking there because we're probably going to be trying to uh, produce some virtual Q&As while Phoenix, Oregon is out. So uh, thanks again, Neil, for the shout out. Thank you. That's been great. Uh, uh, It's a nice long interview. I hope everyone digs it. And uh, yeah, I I really like the movie, too. So I hope people will check it out. It's very relatable. Great performances. Bravo. Good stuff. And uh, uh, I'm, uh, unfortunately, it's like blood in, blood out. I don't really know how to paint, even though I was an artist. And oh, so okay. uh, don't, ask don't, me to make, make don't ask me to make uh, you a pizza because I make it look delicious. It <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. is a very nice right, thing for us like I like. So, yeah. Look yes. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> nice, nice char on it. There's a nice exactly, char yeah. on. <laughs> it did remind me of my of a local pizza place I like uh, down the street here, Sweet Tomatoes. But interesting, yeah. excellent. <laughs> yeah, right. have Actually, a watch get... party over there, Neil. Definitely, yeah, that would be a fun time. <clears throat> All right, you have a good day. You too, everybody. Stay safe, stay at home, and view Phoenix, Oregon, and support something in your head. in college now and I get high and watch TV all day living in my mother's basement's really not that bad I got everything I need and I don't pay and I never asked to grow up so please don't make me do it I wasn't meant to grow up don't think I'll make it I'm
of cards and playing ball Then came my school classes that I couldn't understand for me.